0: It's so elegantly simple. Right. But why didn't I think of that? Right, right. exactly because
1: your mind has been thought to think of something like that. Like right. to like, I need this as my I mean obviously there's a value for the foot, I suppose. Oh it's really like the way. But rope... it's
0: nice because everything's proportional.
1: Right, yes.
0: So, you know, they're they're hitting on all those sacred geometrical points.
1: Naturally.
0: Naturally. Naturally, right? like and it's yes. ergonomic. It's yes. just like built to the body. It's not some abstract number like, oh, we're gonna make the structure 110 feet long and then uh how about 37 and a half feet wide it's just arbitrary if you're doing it with a rope and it's all proportional then you arrive at sacred geometry
1: right it just natural it just naturally happens it's a natural byproduct
0: so what do you want to talk about
2: (laughs) yeah well i feel like uh Mike felt like, I don't know, you didn't want to be a part of it.
1: Well, I was saying, well, I have to leave at, I got to leave at six o'clock. So I figured let's just talk and we'll record and we'll see where it goes. And, uh, but I'm pretty certain that it's, we're going to go to some interesting places. Hmm. We'll just keep on talking. um.
2: Yeah, we're good. I just plugged it on to test it and naturally... What you said was so interesting so yeah let's just roll right into it but yeah it's uh it's interesting because on our podcast your handbook for the apocalypse mike has talked about you briefly so i have a little bit of an idea from looking at your instagram and you know what your expertise is but um i'd love to learn what you've learned about the history of this land you know um but first maybe like what what first sparked your interest? Just growing up around here or uh, getting your hands dirty in the soil? Like, what, when did this begin?
0: Big questions. But <laughs> gotta start broad, right? <laughs> <laughs> start with the big picture and then work out the details. Um, well, you said you're curious about the history of this land, mm. and I would ask you a question in return. What do you mean by this land? I mm. mean broadly speaking, like by the
2: Susquehanna River Valley, <coughs> Susquehanna, Susquehanna River region, River yeah.
0: And specifically this place. So I'll I'll just talk about the lower Susquehanna River, mm. basically from Harrisburg down to the Chesapeake. Um, I actually didn't grow up here. I grew up um, at the tri-state where Delaware, Maryland, and Pennsylvania come together, almost exactly on that point. But I was born in Newark, Delaware. I was mostly where i was born and raised around there and i didn't first come out this way until i might have been 16 or 17. i'm not sure but i went on a camping trip with a bunch of buddies and uh one of them was actually just here with his girlfriend a couple days ago and we were trying to think how many years ago was that was that 13 years ago no was that 17 years ago um so we went to Muddy Creek. And the reason we went to Muddy Creek is my, my friend's brother had picked up some kayaking magazine and he was talking about the Muddy Creek in Pennsylvania. And this is you know, an hour away from where we grew up. And uh, he's like, whoa, this is crazy. There's like white water in Pennsylvania and it's on the Muddy Creek and all this stuff. And so then we just went and camped there and it was, it was amazing. We didn't run into anybody. The whole weekend, you know, it's I don't know if you've ever been to Muddy Creek, but it is it is wild. While you're in the area, I definitely recommend checking it out. It's got old growth eastern hemlock trees that are like five foot, almost six foot in diameter, um, and they're healthy, they're alive, and it's uh, it's a gorge. So, it really feels like it's in the mountains. It's got this you know, big elevation gain, it goes down to water that's crystal clear 15 feet to the bottom with like big you know like boulders and waterfalls or spilling over that And so it's popular whitewater kayaking because people go down that that gorge they go through what they call the chute mm. um and then it ends at the most magnificent swimming hole with like a nice little waterfall coming out of the rock spring fed it's like ice cold but this this time of year the creek is pretty warm so it's like sitting in a hot tub with like ice water coming down on your head. Um, so anyway, that's where we camped, and I, I loved it, but I, uh, I didn't realize the magnificence of this area until a few years later when I was out with my friend Dale, who was taking me out paddling for pawpaws in September on the river here. and. He's like, oh, yeah, that's the Muddy Muddy Creek launch down there. And I was like, wait, that's Muddy Creek? <laughs> and it all came together because I, I knew that area because I camped here. and um, I've just been in love with the area ever since. And then what really solidified it for me was 2014 when I threw hikes the Mason-Dixon Trail, which goes from Chatsford, Pennsylvania, to the Appalachian Trail uh, near uh, Boiling Springs. And, uh, you know, the... The trail once it crosses over the Susquehanna River into Havard Grace from like the Port Deposit, Maryland area, it follows the west west bank of the Susquehanna up to York Haven. So the really magnificent stretches of the river here are all on the Mason Dixon Trail. And so I just you know, as I was through hiking that I was living out of the backpack and, you know, spent several weeks just along the river and it was bliss
2: um, yeah and now i'm grateful to live here right on <clears throat> was it easy to settle into here was it you know a sort of uh like trial to to get this place did it just fall into your lap like what what because you you were hiking what drew you to this house
0: well, this situation is kind of different. Um, this fell into my lap, basically. Mm. I've got a, an older friend who he's in his early 70s, and this was a, a house that had been in his family since 1916. Mm. And it's a typical story across America. You know, you, the, you have kids, they grow up, they're all successful with careers, they live all over the country, and you know, your your family possesses property and somebody dies and now nobody's living there nobody's filling that hole and I was at the right place at the right time and so um, we were able to work something out so that I could buy this place from the family (coughs) now I mean there's some backstory to that like why was I the person you know Um, it wasn't as simple as being in the right place at the right time it was also you know I fit a certain My friend who sold me the place is a lifelong leftist and child of the 60s counterculture and the, the 70s counterculture. This was a commune in the 70s, Park Mill Hall commune. And um, he sees this as fertile grounds to continue the revolution. And um, he liked what I was doing. and You know, I was young enough to take things on, but also um, had the right mindset and um, yeah the rest as they say is history Mm. so the larger context is that this is a really conservative area you got a lot of sort of Bible Belt Christian stuff and Amish and Mennonite communities and then you've got the regular just red state rural America stuff (coughs) and so to have more of a radical presence here is, is, it's far more significant here than if it were, you know, somewhere else where there's a lot of that, sort of the scene already happening.
2: Hmm. And what does that mean to you to be radical in this conservative area?
0: Well, I don't really fall into the whole uh, conservative versus liberal trap. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I think about the word radical and it's to return to your roots to the, the root and so it's important to me to be grounded and so this is basically I mean it's a homestead um, you know and it's as time goes by it becomes more and more uh, self-sufficient I guess mm. <coughs> so yeah for, so for my personal orientation I'm just ai am a, a hands in the earth kind of person mm. And so, so to be here is, um, you know, my my presence
2: here is from that that lens. Now, is there a part of what you do with the land, understanding all the different plants, where you feel like you're helping redefine other people's role in this area, where you see, you know, people with farms, with, you know... For the most part i mean i don't know the amish well enough to generalize but it seems like they they have a very like uh set in their ways approach to what they do and it almost feels like to a modern perspective like oh these guys are old-fashioned when in contrary to that what you're doing is actually organically humanly old-fashioned what the amish are doing is really like you know only 500 years old or 400 years old in comparison to you know what you're doing to connect with the the plants in the the land of this area itself
0: right yeah the jump the amish are thoroughly german protestant
1: yeah right.
0: <laughs> they, they have not fallen far from that tree. right um and you know like you know, uh, sure, they, they grow corn, you know, the, the maize. Um, that's one of the few native things they grow. But a lot of it is, uh, you know, a lot of what they're, they're doing is the, the imported agricultural system.
3: Hmm. Um, right.
0: You know, imported from the colonial, cl- colonial agriculture, I should just call it that, you know, and industrial agriculture and all of that. Um, what I'm trying to get at is... The deeper, the deeper subsistence history of the land here, and to uncover that, some of it has been like actual research and actual study, but a lot of it's just been listening because the, the land has has a uh, has an archetype, you know, and has it's got a pattern and. Um, that pattern can be called the the ecology, the, the ecological region that we're in, you know, the bioregion, you know, we've got certain sets of plants and animals, and you know, we we've, we've got a we've got a living community here. Um, the, the web of life is unique everywhere, and there's a manifestation that's here. And so I'm trying to do honor to that that being. Um yeah. So, what what's my goal and my, my vision with this place? Again, it's a it's a broad it's a broad picture, but where I'm physically situated here is is a really unique opportunity for how my vision can unfold. And so, I'll, I'll talk about that first. So, the property here borders a lot of Public land, the Lancaster Conservancy land, and then it's also a fairly large parcel. I mean, for, for what it is, it's not it's not big or anything, but it's you know t- ten, ten acres for 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 uh, for what it is is for a homestead is, is large, I think. And uh, then you know the majority of the land here was was logged. About eight acres of it uh, five years ago. It was it was high graded. They didn't clear cut it, and then um, and then the other border is um, power company land, and then that's you know the same power company that owns the hydroelectric dam here, and then the nuclear power plant that's six ten miles downstream, whatever it is, and then you get to the river. So you know, and then on. My other boundary, I've got neighbors over there. And so you sort of have, you know, this in-between space where you've got the human realm, and then you've got the wild spaces, and then you sort of have private property, but then you have all the public property, and you know, you've even the public property forks in two ways. You've got the private nonprofit of conservancy which is specifically there for nature conservation and then you've got the public utility land which is just un- it's just not developed because it's just a holding of the power company and they don't have any enforcement um, any real vision for that land it's just sitting there sort of like no man's land and so it's not it's not set aside for conservation or anything it, it just is and then of course you got the the private land and, um, so anyway, I'm, I'm rambling a lot, but, um.
2: No, you're you know? painting us a picture.
0: What I, it. what I see for the, the future of this place, you know, 10, 15, 20 years <laughs> off down the road, is that, you know, of course you'll see, you'll see the house and the driveway and like, you know, where, you know, where the human element is, and then you walk out and, uh, on the land, and you'll see the gardens, you know, the the nursery, the subsistence gardens, you know, all the all the stuff that's happening there. That's very obvious that it's cultivated. And then you've got all the woodland, which I'm in the process of um, regenerating in the ways that I think are appropriate. So a lot of what that looks like is reintroducing a lot of biodiversity, a lot of native wildflowers to the understory, um, planting out the trees that are going to succeed to the canopy again one day you know after if, after the um, the healing from the the logging is 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 passed and so the the land here you know starts almost at the top of the ridge and it's really rocky and steep and then it crosses the road and then it evens out and it's not quite level but it's very gentle and you know it's it's kind of rich bottomland cove Cove Forest. So, across the road it's going to be a lot of chestnuts and oaks um, like the red oak and the black oak. <coughs> <coughs> Shackbark hickory and um, sourwood and sassafras and things like that that, that do well on the, uh, on the slope. And then when you get down on this side of the road it's going to be a lot of white oaks and hickories and persimmons The pawpaw, of course, which is already here, Um, honey locust, and um, mulberry, and hazelnut, and all that stuff. So, you know, five, ten, well, fifteen or twenty years from now, I'd love to see like a seamless transition between everything. You know, you, you're, you're in the house and you go outside and then suddenly it kind of goes from more intensively cultivated to more extensively um, managed. And uh, before you know it, you start walking on one of the trails here and you're going into what you think is just this beautiful, healthy, biodiverse forest. And then someone informs you, well, actually, this is all, this is all anthropogenic. This all has the hand of a human, humans, you know, hopefully many humans, because I'd love this to be a a cooperative, collaborative space. Um, And I think it's at that moment that, you know, the lights will go off and you realize, so we can be a part of all this, you know, because the the narrative that we hear over and over again is that we're we're a scourge of the earth, we're destructive, um, everything we touch turns to shit. You know, it's like the opposite of the minus touch. <laughs> mm. And uh, <clears throat> there's definitely truth to a lot of that.
2: You're, you're reclaiming the title of steward of the land. Whereas, right. you know, agriculture pretends to do that. You know, permaculture is what really needs to happen. If that's the right word, would you use that word? Permaculture? Well, I would try to
0: steer clear of all of those words. Right to be honest. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, what I'm doing can definitely be considered permaculture, can definitely be considered agroforestry, can definitely be considered horticultural work, can definitely be considered gardening, but it's sort of all of the above and none of the above at the same time. Right. Um, yeah, we, we don't really have the right words right now to articulate what just... Uh Hello
1: what's up brian
3: what's up hey, man right? how you been
1: good how was your day
3: it was good it was good just uh washing a porch and that was about it you know i know yeah man
1: it was easy made 40 bucks <laughs> cool. so chilling. very nice can yeah. i ask you a question can yeah. you describe or do you know this do you could, are you able to articulate on how this region may have been managed or the relationship between land and people prior to
0: Sure. Yeah, that's again. Right.
1: It's a <laughs> it's a big question. Well, and uh, in, in the way, and maybe also add this. And, and I'm asking I'm asking the question with the context that the three of us today went to the Serpentine Barrens. Yep. And so that's like a certain Good. flavor. So, I to start so with let's that. start
0: with that and then let's go start to. Serpentine like, Barrens.
1: Okay. All right.
0: So nowadays you got the Serpentine Barrens, and you go there, and what's growing? It's not that barren. There's mm, right. A lot of uh, red pine and. Uh, red cedar and oak oak yeah a lot of like, pitch that pine, oak and pitch pine and i'm just um, remembering what the rangers lots of sumac <laughs> yeah lots of sumac and a lot of these serpentine barrens are pretty densely overgrown hmm. yeah and that's extremely new it's because fire has been suppressed on the landscape in just the last right. generation or so right. so you know even you go back to 1890 and there's still Fires on the Serpentine Barrens. Hmm. It's it's really a. I mean, it was less and less common in those days, but <laughs> but you go back to the 1600s, and the, um, the first colonial people who came and witnessed the Serpentine Barrens described it as a treeless expanse as far as the eye could see. It was a true prairie. And
1: compared were, to, like, what else were they seeing? Like, so you were what? What did the landscape look like prior? Like you're walking along uh, pre-colonial European, and what are you seeing? And then why is the Serpentine Barrens uh, a contrast?
0: Well, <laughs> again, that's that's a complicated question too, because all of most of York County was considered barrens mm. on the on the old maps, like from the 1600s and 1700s. So, you know, when the first settlers came here, they thought the soil was actually poisoned. Because there was no there was no tree cover, especially in the uplands where it's kind of gently ro- rolling and was like not down by the creeks, um, but you know, sort of the you know a lot of what's farms today, mm. right? That was all just prairie, right? And so they called it barrens. They thought that they didn't realize that you know that land was kept open through literally an unbroken chain of fire um, use on the land over 10,000 years Mm. since before the glaciers melted right Um, so the reason the serpentine barrens are so special these days is because they do have a different geological substrate they've got that serpentine rock which is really high in certain nutrients like manganese and I'm not sure what all else you know cobalt but you know it's it's really uh it's not conducive to a lot of plant growth and so you know succession happens you know ecological succession happens so you know with in the absence of fire those spaces are not open anymore they're not barren they do grow up the trees but they recover much slower than the rest of the landscape does and so in the wake of fire management you know when whereas most of this county used to be open um the serpentine barons are just much slower in growing back in the forest so there's still a lot of glady areas there because you got not only this um, serpentine rock which is harsh for uh, for for plant growth but it also uh, there's a lot of like open rocky outcrops sort of like the soil is very thin the serpentine's like right at the level of the ground um, almost looks like like a paved area hmm. in some places. Yeah. Um, now there's some islands out there, Lower Bear and Upper Bear Island. And today they're spelled B E A R. You know, you think of you know black bears. But I found an old map from the early eighteen hundreds where it was spelled B A R E. And so that's hinting at the older history here. They were they weren't islands for bears. They were barren islands. Hmm. And so, all along the Susquehanna River here, there's some really cool preservation of prairie grasses and wildflowers. Like for example, we got that tall coreopsis, which usually you have to go to the Midwest to see that um, Coryopsis uh, tripterus. And then we've got you know the little blue stem, the big blue stem. Um, we've got um, lots of lots of other prairie grasses and sedges and things like that. And so if you talk to botanists, they say that, for whatever reason, this was a holdover from the the hypsothermal period, which was a time about, uh, I guess, about a thousand years ago, maybe fifteen hundred years ago, where the climate got cooler and drier, and so there was an expansion of grasslands all over the northern hemisphere. But that explanation isn't really wholly adequate because you know, the, the important piece is, is the fire. The most important piece is the fire from you know with, uh, Native American management. Um, so on the Serpentine Barrens, there's this little plant. It's a fame flower. It's a femoranthus is the genus. That that might be the old taxonomy though. I forget what they're calling it now but it's a, it's a disjunct, which means it's closest kin um, are not in this region, they're, they're elsewhere. And so it's, it's next of kin are in this desert southwest. And so you see, you've got this, this genus of plants, you've got one species in the serpentine grounds in southeastern Pennsylvania, and then you gotta go all the way out to the south, southwest to find other species like it. And so what happened is, you know, we had the glaciers here 12,000 years ago. Uh, the glaciers only came down maybe about as far south as Berks County, in Pennsylvania. So th- this was not a glaciated area. But, you know, people sometimes get this mis, um, this misapprehension that, you know, there was there was forest here because th- there wasn't glaciers here. So I guess there was, you know, maybe maybe woods here. But there's there's a big band of tundra. The, uh, beyond the glaciers and then you go into some scrub, shrubscape and, and boreal forest and then beyond the boreal forest you get the northern hardwoods like you get to see maples and birches and things like that and then you get into the the oaks and the hickories and you know the kind of hardwoods we think of so even though the glaciers didn't really come further south than berks county this would have all been tundra 10,000 years ago and this tundra would have extended all the way down into Virginia and it was only in Virginia that you started to get more of something that would resemble a forest you know, the, like the spruce and the fir and the, you know, all of, and the pine and all of that so it would have been boreal forest and then you would have had to go probably all the way down to some parts of North Carolina South Carolina Georgia Alabama to find anything. That would resemble woods like we know today. Here. Mm. So it's pretty far down. Actually, like the hickories and the pecans and the birches and the maples and the sweet gums, they're all the way down in Mexico I and mean, there's still some of them there in the, in the cloud forests at high elevation. You can go to these forests in the Sierra Gordas where it's like suddenly you're in a canopy of sugar maple and white oak and uh, sweet gum and shagbark hickory and uh, it, it's just like you're in Appalachia. It's just like these isolated pockets, because that's, that's how far the, the uh, forest had to migrate. <coughs> so, you know, let's get back to that fame flower. So it's what's its habitat? It's this open, glady, prairie-like tundra habitat, right? So, you know, 10,000 years ago, these faint flowers could have extended all over North America. And then as the glaciers... Retreated, a lot of those icebergs, uh, a lot of those glaciers melted, became icebergs, and they drifted down the Susquehanna into Chesapeake Bay. So a lot of those those uh, scoured rocky islands you see out there, literally scoured by glaciers. Mm. Um, yeah, and then of course you had this warming, and then the tundra gave way to boreal forest, and you know the boreal forest gave way to the northern hardwoods, and the northern hardwoods gave way to more of the the tempered oak hickory stuff that we're, we're more familiar with. Um, but because of the serpentine soils and the predominance of human use of fire, because remember, Native people were here for well over 10,000 years, I mean, you know, uh, at least 26, 30,000 years in the continent. Uh, if you talk to some Native people, they'll say they've been here for 50,000 years. I've got no reason to disbelieve that. <coughs> so you've got continuous use of, hum- of fire by humans for all that time. So as the tundra is open and people are hunting on the tundra here in Pennsylvania, because this is, you know, we've got a lot of Clovis culture that centers in this area. So the Clovis culture was—I mean, they were—they were hunting on tundra. Um, What's that? So that would be the open grassy vi- uh, vistas. You mean
2: Clovis culture or tundra?
0: Clovis. Well, oh, culture. Clovis culture. Yeah, that it's this distinctive uh, spear point. Um, you know, they're they're quite big and they're really ornately chiseled. It, it's a distinctive look, so the archaeologists say, "Oh, that's that's the Clovis category," and that um, these archaeological categories have to do with um, particular cultures mm. that. We find a Clovis point here, and then a Clovis point over there. We can reasonably infer that a similar culture, a similar material culture made, made both plants.
2: Right. They lived on the
3: tundra?
0: Yeah, I mean, maybe not exclusively, but certainly on the tundra. And on the tundra, you had the, the mammoth, the woolly mammoth. So there's the mammoth and the mastodon. And the difference between them is that the, the woolly mammoth has these big tusks, which are really big and sweeping, and they, they go low. Because it would live on the tundra, and it would sweep the snow aside with its tusks, so it could get the vegetation. And when it's sweeping the snow across uh, away from the vegetation, the ground freezes. So the woolly mammoth created the permafrost. <clears throat> and then the, the mastodon, they were primarily browsers of trees. <clears throat> so they would live, uh, presumably, you know, more more southern climes where you had some boreal forest, and um, I know the mastodons would eat lots of spruce cones and spruce tips and things like that. But I mean, they would they would eat all kinds of stuff. Like the honey locust trees were probably eaten by mastodon, you know, and um, like uh, hickories and um, black locusts and things like that. The reason these trees have bark that's so I mean not bark but wood that's so tough and strong is because they evolved at a time when they were in danger of being trampled over by elephants hmm. um, so you had to have to be tough and the honey locust these, makes these giant thorns which are like you know sometimes two or three feet long <laughs> it's, who are you trying to detract yeah the mastodons literal elephants wow you know so so this time of the, the tundra is this is like the height of the Pleistocene so you got like saber-toothed cats, and you've got, you know, huge bears, you know, like, way bigger than a grizzly, I I forget what they're called, um, maybe the short-faced bear, the, whatever.
2: Gigantopithecus? Or is that the, that's what they think Sasquatch evolved from. You know about that, Gigantopithecus? I don't
0: think so. Yeah, that
2: was a North American creature. I don't know if it was the, uh... It might have been a giant bear. I think that might be the same one.
0: I mean, yeah, if you had cultural memory of, like, the Pleistocene and the ginormous, like, things that existed and also wanted to eat you, I mean, you'd have some pretty pretty awesome tales <laughs> hmm. to tell. Because, I mean, we were not at the top of the food chain then. Not at all. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we take a lot of that for granted now. But in those days, you know, you had lions and tigers and bears
2: and so how, how important would you say is that understanding when you're walking the land like you're seeing evidence of that time period as you walk i mean obviously the rocks are literally carved by glaciers i mean where we're from a lot of the field stones just are massive and seem like how did this get here and it's because the glacier flows pushed all these giant rocks into the places that they are but I mean, you can, you can see evidence of thousands of years of history just by walking around here.
0: Totally. Now, here on the river, you can see that. Right. You can't see it in the, in Fields. the uplands. Because, mm. you know, was it, like you go up to New York State, and you can see like, where the, the terminal moraines were, where the glaciers had literally scoured the land mm. as they were, you know, kind of ranging over the ground. They, they crush everything. Um, but we, we didn't have that here we have glaciers but they came as icebergs down the river so there were huge boulders and things that would have been displaced in the river and actually where uh, Big Indian Rock is in the river where some of those petroglyphs are I think that stone may be granite hmm. and there's no other stone like that in this area so you know whether the petroglyphs were there or not that stone is a unique formation hmm. the fact that it's just this giant boulder situated right there in the middle of the river and it's granite, mm. and most of the stone we have around here is schist, um, which includes a lot of quartz and mica. We've got some sandstone, some dolomitic limestone, <coughs> but we don't have any granite, because that's, that's an igneous rock uh, from like, prior volcanic activity. Mm. I guess. I mean, Ryan's a geologist. I, I think is the granite's metamorphosed, right? It's metamorphosed igneous rock. Or, I don't, I don't know it? about
3: the granite you're talking about. I haven't seen it, but uh, that's that's volcanic. Uh, so, and and if it's granite, it's actually like intrusive. So it came up from the center of the Earth, you know, and uh, got situated on top of the surface too. So it wasn't really a volcano as it was like uh, a rock that formed beneath the crust and then came up to the surface just by like plate tectonics and things like that,
0: so.
2: Yes. There's a bunch of granite where we're at. Um, the granite that made the, the Liberty, the base of the Statue of Liberty mm. came from two towns over uh, where we're from. Oh, nice. in, okay. uh, in Connecticut, there's a bunch of granite. Yeah, right on. Yeah. C-
1: Can we talk a little bit more about uh, the petroglyphs? Sure. Like, you were telling an interesting story of, like, maybe we could paint a picture of what the petroglyphs are today, and, like, how it's how they're looked at from an archaeological perspective. Like, you know, there's anyone even looking at it. And then, specifically, how the position of the stones which they're on, how that's changed over the last 75 or 100 years as the damming has occurred upon the river
0: yeah well there's there's a bunch of dams on the river unfortunately the first one's the conowingo dam just above the chesapeake bay and then there's the uh the Altwood dam that's the second one that's the one right above where i'm at <coughs> and then there's the safe harbor dam and then there's uh york Haven. so there's at least four that i know of there may be more but um you know, behind every dam, like so upstream of every dam, you've got the impoundment. And so the impoundment has artificially raised the water level. And so it's just like in a bathtub, right? If you got the level at a certain, um, you know, if you raise the water level in, in, the, in the bathtub, it comes up and, you know, um, the, the, the ring... <laughs> Let me use a different analogy. Now if you if you got a... So, so anyway. <laughs> so above the dam, you got the impoundment. Water level has risen. So that means that a lot of places along the coast are gonna be flooded mm. above the dam.
2: Right. So but underneath it. the dam, the water level is gonna be lower. So it's sort of like a shifted, like as you come towards the dam, things are more flooded. And then as you, you know, the next stage of the river at the immediate, you know, bottom of the, the dam, that's where the water levels is lowest. Is that the difference you're talking about?
0: True. Yeah, yeah. You would, you would th- normally, you know, in the, in the, the water level would be lower below the dam than it would naturally be. And behind the dam, it will be higher than it would naturally be. Mm. <coughs> but that's all thrown off here in the river because we've got so many dams. Right. So... Um this water, right off, you know where, where I live, is artificially it is higher than it would have been naturally because we are in the impoundment of the Conowingo Dam, which is downstream. I don't know how much higher it is, but it, it is higher. Um, and then, you know, this Holtwood dam makes the impoundment above us, which is Lake Clark. And that's where, you know, up, up above us is where Peckway is. That's where those petroglyphs are, and they're situated right below the Safe Harbor Dam. So you would think that that water would be art- would be lower than it than it was before the, the dams were put in, but that water is actually I would say substantially higher than it was uh, before the before the dam was put in. Before the dam was put in, for example, Little, Little Indian Rock was this giant rock boulder sitting on um, an island. At a a shore, some grasses and stuff. Um, Of course, it would flood on water events, but a lot of times you could um, you could go out, navigate the waters, which of course would did quite swift before the dams were put in, and uh, you could you could stand and walk around that island where the the petroglyphs are. Now that shoreline that was once there is three four feet underwater. Hmm. on average do um, <coughs> you
1: have
0: any other questions? Well, what about
1: like what are the petroglyphs? Like what do we know about the petroglyphs? and then I, I was kind of like I was, I was hinting at this and I'm curious what your thoughts are is you know I'm not, a, I'm not in the archaeological world but from what I understand is <coughs> for such a high concentration of petroglyphs these are basically ignored like, there's such a high... Concept, like, there, there are all these petroglyphs which people like to talk about in the archaeological world, but we've got all of these right here, and it's just like, ah, oh, there's nothing to see, which...
0: Yeah, if, according to some, some people, this is the highest concentration of petroglyphs in eastern North America, east of the, the Rocky Mountains or whatever, or the, even the Colorado River, so this is
1: significant. <coughs> and that's the sp- And that spot in particular... Right the uh, the um, the, uh, <laughs> the, the one big granite <laughs> boulder, which doesn't seem to make sense, right? Because you're saying that there isn't any granite found anywhere else, and that's like right in the center of the river, like right where the, Con- uh, the Conestoga like empties in, it. and then that we've got all, not just like random petroglyphs, but but um, seemingly intelligent markers and indicators. and also the previous way I think I've heard you describe before uh, of when the water level was before it was manipulated um, the interaction the human being interaction with with the petroglyphs and the stones they're on was totally different, like it was an experience it wasn't just like, hey I'm going to mark something like I'm having an experience this is something else Mm
0: -hmm. well you used the word um, Conestoga Mm-hmm. And so I'll, I'll use that jumping point because the, both the word Conestoga and the word Kanawingo or Kanawago, or it's, also, it's also written, are from uh, Iroquoian languages. So these are a group of people that are more associated with uh, northern northern areas. And, you know, it's, it's told that they kind of came, came south and displaced some other folks who were living here at the time along the river. And what does seem clear is that the, the Conestoga people um, who lent the word Conlingo to this, this region were not the people who carved the petroglyphs. Mm-hmm. That, that seems fairly certain. Uh, so the petroglyphs were largely rediscovered in the 80s by Paul Nevin, who's known as Petroglyph Paul around here.
1: And, uh, what do you mean rediscovered? This is new to me. I haven't heard this story.
0: Well, the petroglyphs are written about by archaeologists going back into the eighteen hundreds.
1: Well, there's that book Barzdow. Is that the author? Came out in nineteen twenty four. It's like, uh, it, to me, that's that's the best um, example of knowledge. There was a full study or mapping of the of the of the rocks and all of the different petroglyphs i want to there's, see the guy
0: there's a book by donald kadzo
1: kadzo not barzo yeah kaz i'm was not this, sure what year that was yeah called. that was in the 1920s hmm.
0: but they uh there were petroglyphs that were known about back into the 1800s i mean correct
1: i would imagine they all, all there
0: used to be far more uh, okay than what we see today uh, a lot of them were sadly pilfered you know stolen um Put into private collections, chipped off a of rock, and you know taken away. Um, there was a boulder, actually, um, you know maybe about the size of a person. You know, not like a like a small car. Like it would have been a task to lift it up, but doable, um, or you could have hauled it away by horse. And that was um, near where the McCall's Ferry Hotel used to be. And uh, that's written about in Donald Cadza's book. And it's got some of whatever the glyphs were on there and the Petroglyph Paul hasn't been able to relocate it I don't know where it is hmm. I tend to believe that somebody picked it up and just took it away maybe it'll show up from a private collection someday with somebody's of you these know, descendants, ancestors I mean, sorry <laughs> when the descendants uh, get get some um, <laughs> when they act in their conscience right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's the right thing to do here? <laughs> yeah We've had these things in the family, you know, time, time to <laughs> return them. Um, you know, and then there's some some pieces that have ended up in museums, but they're kind of, you know, few and far between. Um, and then a bunch of petroglyphs are actually flooded under the impoundments behind the hmm. dams right now. So, you know, Walnut Island, Bald Friar Island, these, these islands had huge clusters of petroglyphs, and they're underwater right now. So hopefully someday when those dams get removed, They'll see the light of day again. Um, so the ones below the safe harbor is the biggest complex that is still in the kind of condition where you can just go out on a boat and look at them. Um, there's there's others here and there. there. There's some right right down here below the Norman Wood Bridge, but but again they're they're not as spectacular. Um, but the the whole. Lower Susquehanna River Valley was a sacred landscape, and so all of these um, these petroglyphs they weren't just made once. They're made over thousands of years, and you know some some people think that the oldest ones could be as old as ten thousand years, um, and some of the newest ones could be as young as a thousand years. We don't really have a great way to to be conclusive on that, um, but that's a that's a long period of time. And so it begs the question: Was this like, was there a s- culture that lived here for that long, for nine thousand years, and was able to basically <coughs> steadily create petroglyphs over all that time with some continuation of a the theme, or was this a whole bunch of different cultural groups that were making petroglyphs here for reasons beyond just their individual cultures? It was. It was more of a a collective happening, having to do with the natural positioning of where we are and all that. <coughs> so, you know, n- nobody really knows exactly who carved them. So that's another mystery to it. You know, people have, have theories. Paul Nevin, Patrick with Paul, believes it was Algonquin-speaking peoples. I think it was uh, possibly Siouan speaking peoples. But, you know, it could have been all of the above. Siouan? So, like, Lakota. Mm
2: -hmm. um, Oh, Sioux, right. Right. Okay.
0: Now. So that's a language family that also had lineage in the East.
2: Right. So the first mention I heard of the Susquehanna petroglyphs was from Mike, and he also mentioned a man named Talakiel, who is said to have visited and recognized only one of the petroglyphs as being from his language in mexico or central america um he's a mayan elder i actually spoke to a man named freddie silva who worked with Tolakiel uh deciphering crop circles um but yeah i'm wondering if you looked into that at all as a possible yeah explanation. i I've never met
0: Tolakiel he passed in 2012 or 2013 or somewhere around then. <coughs> and that was before my time living out this way. But I know uh, a, a few friends who knew him personally were, were students of his, and I've read um, one of his self published books, just a simple spiral bound thing. It's actually in Davy's possession. Hmm. Um, it's a, The Journey of the Four Arrows. And so, who Tolakio was, he was a Toltec elder. And so, Tlaxiil is a title, um, like the Pope is a title, right? And so, in the in the indigenous Mexica religion of, of Mexico, Tlaxiil was a very high honor. This was like you know <laughs> the indigenous Mexican Pope. You know that that's that's the analogy of who who was. So his his real name was was Don. Um, I think it might have been Don Miguel. Um, but anyway, he was he was one of twelve wisdom keepers back in in Mexico, and this was at a time when the Mexican government did not want to recognize um, indigenous rights, indigenous peoples, very much in a colonial mindset, and um, there was a pretty pretty bloody war back in the uh, 70s or 80s. And forgive me, I don't know all the all the history, all the dates. Precisely, but um, Talaquiel actually lost at least one of his sons to, to this war. And so, you know, the, these indigenous wisdom keepers, um, I don't know if any of them stayed in Mexico. I think a lot of them went elsewhere where they were persecuted. And so Talaquiel, from my understanding, was sort of nomadic. He, he traveled a lot. Uh he he came to York County quite a bit, and that's because there was another wisdom keeper um who came to York County, you know, left left the the struggles in in Mexico and came to York County of all places and he would lead ceremonies up here and so when Talakiel got connected with Paul Nevin, Petroglyph with Paul, um he was already familiar with the area because he had learned it through the other wisdom keeper. So there's there's definitely a, a draw. You know, there's there's a dispersal pattern that there, there's a resonance that, that happened um, and brought these, these wisdom keepers to this area. Um, according to Talakiel, that's because about a thousand years ago, or maybe it wasn't, a thousand years ago, it, w- it whatever corresponded with the fall of Tula in the, um, the Mayan Empire. After the fall of Tula, there was this um, this journey where you know some some elders went to the four directions of so northeast, southwest, <coughs> went to the land of the rising sun, the land of the setting sun, the land of the north, the land of the south, and then you think of the, the medicine wheel red and yellow and black and white and so you know, there was also an implication here that they were going to different regions of the world where the different races of humanity were and so this journey was symbolized by four arrows four arrows for four directions and one of the directions brought them right here and so when Tolakio went out and saw the petroglyphs below the safe harbor dam he identified one of the figures it's this man with really big hands, and really big feet. and Tawakiel said that that was Wima, who had traveled a great distance because he was one of the people that had traveled in this journey of four arrows. Um, and thats about all I can say about that. <laughs> hmm.
2: Wima, in comparison to what you told me about a story waiting to pierce you, right with the
1: arrows with the arrows yes Uh, so you mentioned you just you kind of like you you said it and then you you danced past it my ears hooked into it and I'm gonna I'm gonna reel it back in and you're like oh yeah the Lower Susquehanna was like you know it was a sacred landscape it was a sacred region Um, how do we know that or like what what, what is where does that come from what is that knowledge like um how do we know that that this area was seen by other cultures like this is this is special
0: <laughs> man where to begin again um well as it relates to the petroglyphs the petroglyphs have a lot of different um distinctive genres just dis- distinctive styles so they're not they're not um mono style no uniform by, by any by any by any stretch of the imagination mm-hmm. and so if you asked to why was that he said oh yeah it's because you know the, the, during the Journey of the Four Arrows, the four, the four races. You know, they, they're all around the world, people were traveling and getting together in this time. And he says that you know, there were petroglyphs that represented the, the African nations. There were petroglyphs that represented the Asian nations. And there were petroglyphs that represented the Native American nations. And then the story he tells is that the European nations never showed up. And that's part of the reason why we're living in the imbalance that we are in today. Now, is that just a story that he's telling to, you know, just-so story, or is that a true thing that happened? I don't know. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna weigh in any further on that. But it is interesting, because you notice these distinct stylistic differences. And it could fit with that kind of story that he's telling. Um, but anyway, so the, the Susquehanna, the way we're situated here, um, geographically, geologically, we're like right above the Chesapeake Bay, we're sort of on the Eastern seaboard. We're like at the foot of the mountains, but we're also like sort of at the foot of coastal plain. So this was a very this is a very in between place. So <laughs> over in the east, you had the Lenny Lenape peoples, and you know they 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 are known as the, the Grandfathers the Grandmothers because they're they're so old. They seem to have lived basically a, their territory Lenape Lenapehoking for thousands and thousands of years. Just a very ancient culture. pretty much stay put, you know? And I don't mean stay put in the sense that they just, like, build a house and never left the house. I mean, like, their their territory was their territory. And there wasn't a whole lot of shifting there. Um, And then to the west, you had, for example, the Suen-speaking peoples. um, Because that would include, like, the Tulo and the Saponi and the Haliwa and the... um, the, uh, the Monacan, um groups like that. And then uh, you could also, c- though the Shawnee were not Siouan speaking, they also came primarily from the west. So, for example, the Pequay Creek up there, that's the Pequay band of the Shawnee. So there's also a Pequay, Ohio, because that's, that's where they came from. And in, uh means we are arising from the ashes. So they did a slash and burn agriculture, and that, um, you know, that that's how they, they got their, their subsistence, right? Um, so that that band of the Pequway came east. Why did they come east? You know, I, I think it's probably because they were following the bison. Probably there's bison tracks on the patch of this and, You know, there were thousands that had bison. In these barrens, where we had all these prairies that were here into the 1600s. Now, it doesn't mean there's no forest here, but the forest would have been down along the creeks. It would have been in like these gorges and these hollows, you know. It wouldn't have been like in the sweeping open upland country. It would have been in the moist areas, mm. you know, where it's where it's just harder to burn. Like there's areas around here you'll never really be able to burn it because it's just all summer long it's just saturated. All mm. winter long it's just saturated.
3: Right.
0: Um, so, and then to the north you had the Haudenosaunee peoples like the Iroquois speaking nations so this would have included um, presumably like the Conestoga for example the Susquehannock um, even though Susquehannock is actually Algonquian <laughs> uh, anyway there, there's a, there's a lot we don't know sadly because the history of colonization. We had the, the massacre up there with the, the Paxton boys killed the last of Conestogas up in Fulton Peter in the 1700s. And, uh, of course, you know, the Trail of Tears in the 1830s. And um, Yeah, I mean, I, I wish it had been another way. It's, then we would have a better history of exactly who happened here and, and how how everything was. Um, but then in the south you, you got the the Powhatan, the Powhatan groups. So you had the, the Powhatan Confederacies, which were all the tribes that lived along the Chesapeake Bay. And so we're smack dab in the middle of all that. So think about the four directions again, right? And the medicine, you know <laughs> we've got east, meets west, meets north, meets south. Where'd they meet? Right here in the lower Susquehanna River. Mm. This was this was the Venn diagram where all these cultural spheres overlapped. Right. So you know, and, and that—that's not an accident. That's because of geography, geology, topography, all these things. You know, you—you you know, where do you want to approach it, right? There's an in whichever angle you come to 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 look at that. Um, but then beyond that, like Mike's work has uncovered, the Susquehanna is just a very profound place in general. Because this is probably the, the oldest flowing, continuously flowing current on Earth. This is one of the oldest rivers in the world. It's at least as old as the Appalachian Mountains. We know that it existed before the mountains rose. And so, you know, this This means that the river's at least 360 million years old. And after that, the trail just becomes too fuzzy that we can't really date it any more precisely than that. What we do know is that when the, First mountain building events occurred, which later become known as the Appalachians that we know today. Um, there wasn't a North American continent like we think of today. You know, originally, this would have been like uh, Hawaii or Japan, like volcanic activity thrusting up out of the sea. And as these mountain building events happen, you know you got you got a chain of mountains over here, and you have got a chain of mountains over here, and what do they do? They drag up bits of the crust with them. It's kind of like, like if if uh, if we're holding a uh, tarp, if we're holding a big tarp, and you're standing over there, and I'm standing over here, and the tarp's covered in water, and we're we're crouched down, and the tarp's on the ground level, but then we stand up. Mm-hmm. We're the mountains, but we brought the crust up with us. Right. Right. So that's what happened. That's that's where the North American. Craton. You know, well, the, the, Loren, the Laurentian craton. That's that's where it comes from. So <laughs> the Susquehanna River exists in the oldest craton that exists in this in, in North America, basically. You know, and, um, that river was flowing. Um, very, very, very long time ago. So to put it into perspective, the Cambrian Explosion was 500 million years ago. Half a billion years ago. What happened during the Cambrian Explosion? Life basically became more complicated than single-celled. <laughs> we, uh, we came up with bilateral symmetry. That's why we've got an eye on both sides of our head. That's why we've got two ears. That's why we've got two arms, two legs. So bilateral symmetry comes from 500 million years ago we also, um, there were geological changes on the planet at the time, which made, um, made there was more erosion of the coast. So there were, there were more, there was a greater amount of things like calcium, for example, which we could then incorporate into our bodies. And so not only do you have bilateral symmetry, but you've got um, bones and cartilage come from the time of the Cambrian Explosion. So, you know, the, the planet is 4.2 billion years old. And we don't know exactly when life showed up. You know, maybe maybe it was there from of the beginning, maybe 3.7 billion years, whatever. But basically, life was not very complicated for a very, very long time. We only had that explosion 500 million years ago. And the river is at least 360 million years old. So for almost the entire history of complicated life, especially terrestrial life,
1: <laughs> wow. So I gotta leave in like five minutes, and I don't know if you wanted to do another hour once I was gone, or like how you wanted to do. But I wanted to throw that out right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if we wanted to take a break, if, if I did uh, want
2: to ask before you go about that flower that you said grows in the Serpentine Barrens and also in the Southwest, because Mike had this statement that he made that like before we even decided on going to the ser- serpentine Barrens, he was like i feel like m- the southwest is calling me and we randomly ended up in the serpentine Barrens just by sort of playing a chance game and we determined uh on the serpentine Barrens. and as soon as we got there mike was like you know w- how does this place make you feel i'm like this is like the southwest <laughs> Exactly like nope. the Southwest.
1: Uh, my ears peaked up when when you made that connection between the closest relative to the to the the plant which you've seen in, in the serpentine barrens in yeah. the southwest. I'm like and I and I think about this. One of my callings, like personally, from what I have read about Tulakio, he always put a connection with um, is it the Chaco Canyon? Mm-hmm. in New Mexico. Yeah. And the Susquehanna petroglyphs. And I don't I don't know much more than that. Like I just know that is like like, you know, an out of context statement, but I'm a king of out of context statements. Like they're the best. But that is also part of like a linkage. Like I think a lot about uh, of, you know, I'm interested in in non-material linkages, like what you do, I think so beautifully is you can tell like these very linear tales and very like like concrete, like scientific tales of connection. But then there's also a recognition of like, but there's a lot we don't know, and like this is the best we got. And yeah. I like to go into there, but somehow there seemingly and, and and here is it there's a question to this 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 statement <laughs> this, this 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 little monologue I'm on. Um, how unique. Is the serpentine barrens? They're probably like what, like thirty minutes from where we're sitting right here in the lower Susquehanna um, Valley. Just for the people to have a point of reference. Like, do you find things like that throughout the Mid-Atlantic, or are there are other serpentine barrens? Like, how often do you run across something like that?
0: I mean, there's definitely serpentine barrens all all over the world. I know there's, there's okay. some big serpentine barrens in like southwestern Oregon, um, and I'm not sure where else in North America, Right, but I, I've been to the ones right. in southwestern Oregon too, Right. Um, but for the Mid-Atlantic, yeah, this is the, these are the only ones that I'm aware of, um, they're the, the Mid-Atlantic Serpentine Barons, and they go basically from Philadelphia, um, I think there might even be a little bit of serpentine in New Jersey on the other side of the Delaware River, but basically they go from the Delaware River, Um, Very, very small, but, you know, by the time you get to Unionville, Pennsylvania, there's some some real serpentine barren areas that you can go. They're conserved today. And then they go, and then they they go to the Susquehanna River. They cross over the river, or under the river, rather. And then they go into York County, and then they go down into Maryland towards Baltimore. And, uh, And then after that, they disappear. But... I don't think that it's that they actually evaporate. It's just that once you get further enough into western Maryland, the Piedmont and the mountains start up. And so you know, that, that geology just kind of you know, rides over top of whatever. Mm. So, yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to hear from a geologist about serpentine because I wish I knew more about it. Right. <laughs> mm.
2: Yeah. Now, so you could have walked... From the Susquehanna to the Delaware, and mainly been in a serpentine, barren sort of landscape, is what you're saying. Like it oh, was yeah. that contiguous. This, this was open. Yeah.
0: Um, I mean, all the way. Because one thing that all the way to Delaware, like for example, there's a little town near Kennett Square called Tough Keneman, hmm. and that's a Lenape word, which means firebrand hill. Hmm. You know, so the Lenape would go up there, and you know, when you like fire, you want to start from uphill first, so right? Let it downhill. Um, and of course you get that, that vista point. And then there's a lot of old historic like white oak trees. The one in Grove Oak, for example, which is in that area, which is was supposedly a tree of note when William Penn chartered Pennsylvania in 1683. So, you know, depending on the arborist you talk to, some, some people think it's only like 330 years old. I think it's probably five, 600 years old. But, you know... <laughs> Either way, it's, it's very old, and that tree was there um, pre-colonial. We'll, we'll acknowledge that, at least. And this is an open-grown oak, so it did not grow in the forest surrounded by other trees having to compete. It's more broad than it is tall, it's, it's a big, spreading thing. And we, we had a tree like that in uh, New Jersey, too, the, the Salem oak, and that one's dead. Uh, it died a few years ago. And they had to take it out. Sadly, when they did, they were able to measure exactly how old it was—six like hundred and eighty years old. Wow! Sure enough, it was an open-grown oak. You know, it grew up grew up in the middle of a pasture, mm-hmm. in the prairie. So this this whole idea that you know, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, you know, a squirrel could hop from tree to tree from Maine to Georgia is not really true. Maybe if they were on the spine of the Appalachian Mountains, sure, but. Um, The, the, the vast majority of eastern North America was not closed canopy forest. There was a lot of um, savanna, so a lot of it was tree, but the trees were very widely spaced.
1: Because
0: the, the first colonial reports talk about how you could take a, a horse drawn carriage, you know, five horses abreast, at full speed through the countryside, you know, and under the big stately trees, and people described it as like a park. Hmm. Try to do that in one of our woods today. You right. can't do it. Yeah, because they, they were talking about trees that would have been, you know, ten feet in diameter. Yeah, you know, that sounds like a tall tale, but no, it's it's the way it was. You know, the oak trees ten feet in diameter that were probably perhaps you know hundred spaced hundred feet apart.
2: Have you ever heard of the Charter Oak? Yeah. Charter Oaks near where in we're from in Connecticut. It's oh. a tree in Hartford where they hid. Uh, one of the charters of the constitution from the british Uh, but it was a sacred meeting site for hundreds of years for the um, local tribe which was a smaller group that i think split off from the lenape there was a wepawag tribe that lived up in that area the narragansett uh, the mohawk came down certain rivers from the north to raid um, but it was very like split up and they had a a group of people called the Pequois which was not their own name for themselves it was a name that the uh people that were more native than them to Connecticut called the Pequois because they were invaders the word Pequois means invader so a lot of the natives in Connecticut at the point when the English and the Dutch started settling were not the original inhabitants just like you're saying with the Iroquois Um, But I heard Ross Ben talk about that Lenape having uh, the wampum trade going all the way up the coast near where we are. And there's, I mean, where we're from is known for its shellfish. Oyster River is like the name of like every fifth river is called Oyster River. There's big oyster festivals every summer. Some
0: people argue that Susquehanna means Oyster River.
2: Really? Susquehanna? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, what's this about the connection to a Gaelic word? Because that's what another thing that I was introduced to from
1: Mike. The uh, the Gaelic river connection does not directly tie to the Susquehanna, so it was Barry Fell. I always get Barry Fell and Barry Kent confused. One is the guy from FM and the other guy is from Harvard. Barry Fell. Is he is he the, the FM? America
0: BC. Yeah,
1: that's the one. So Barry Fell is the one who really put out the connection between the Gaelic words and the northeastern um, the northeastern river connection. Like a lot of northeastern rivers sound the same or phonetically the same and have the same seeming meaning. Now as it relates to the Susquehanna. I ran with that cuz as I said I like to take the things out of context because that way you know when you're playing synchromysticism you have you have more rules mm. and Sequana right. is a primary river goddess within right. within the um, you know the the Gaulish world the Celtic world and so Seeing that there had already been a correlation between like rivers and Gaelic. So I kind of jumped with that. The the name Susquehanna, to the best of my knowledge, first came, the first time we know about it is on the John Smith map. And that's the first time it was put down. Uh I'm leaving right now. You don't have to leave, but I have to get out of here. Yeah. All right, you're cool? Yeah. I'll see you back there. Thanks, Mike. All right. Brother, that was fantastic. Bye-bye. Will you be back? No, I'm not going to be back. Okay. But I will take this. I'll put this in the sink. <laughs> Alright. See ya.
2: Do you want to sit here, Ryan?
0: No, I'm cool.
2: I was going to ask, I didn't want to interrupt. Do you mind if I smoke, if I roll something up? No. Okay. What do you
0: smoke? Cannabis? No. <laughs> do you have
2: tobacco? Yeah. Why, no. do you want to. What's that? Can I have one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could uh, smoke what I'm rolling up, or I'm, I don't have papers, I just have blunt wraps, I don't oh, know gotcha. what you're Modern partial papers. to, but.
0: Exactly. They, anyway, um, <laughs> I got a friend who's closely connected with the Lenape folks, um, and. She's not connected, she is Lenape, right? Well, and Mike. Her grandmother was Lenape.
3: Yeah.
2: Mike told me that you're the guy that they came to to help them understand some of the uh, actual, like, plants that they would have used, um, like, a 100 years ago or, you know, hundreds of years ago. Like, you helped them under, re-understand, like, the, the cultural context of the herbs around here. Am I off on that? or?
0: Well, it makes me uncomfortable to hear that. Because, <laughs> um, because <laughs> you know, I, I want to be really respectful and right here because right. you know I'm not I'm not a white guy coming to Lenape to teach house and, and
2: and Mike said it with more nuance than I yeah. did <laughs> so
0: right I, I mean I, yeah I, I know a lot about plants and I'm happy to share right um you know and I try to keep it that at that,
2: that. <laughs> um <clears throat> now you mentioned maize before I see they grow tobacco here too was that uh is that significant at all or is that so because connecticut's like known for its local tobacco but was that a part of this like what were some of the ritual herbs that people would grow around here or use
0: yeah tobacco for sure it would have been the koshiana rustica mm. um yeah so to to backtrack on up my, my point a little bit i, I mentioned my, my friend who's connected my um, grandmother was mm. she's quite well connected with the uh so the Citizens. Um and she claims similar to Mike that there is a connection between the Nape and uh some old Norse dialects. Mm. And it's not really something that I've really fully researched and I don't have an opinion. Um I, I have a gut intuition and it's that that doesn't quite feel right. Hmm. Like, I don't understand how that could be the case, that there would be a connection between these languages. But I'm not going to discount it.
2: Can I add a little to that? Sure. So I have a friend in Norway who I podcast with occasionally, and he's very interested in Norwegian alternative history and and how far they made it on their Viking ships. And him and a woman, I don't remember her last name or her name at all, but she works with scott walter and the whole oak island mystery if you're familiar at all with oak island up in uh, oh, yeah, yeah. so oak island mystery has to do with templars and all that but he was specifically asking her about the norwegian connection to north america and apparently um it was like a ritual summer thing where they would take a summer trip to north america from norway Spend time with the natives. And there are many Norwegian people that just stayed. They never went back to Norway. They emigrated to North America way before Spain ever set sail. So, and this is like genealogical evidence from Norway. This is like records in Canada. They have proof of this. But whenever you get into pre-Spanish European travel, there's like political reasons why You know they don't want to recognize this kind of stuff but not an expert much that's as much as I know but yeah it seems like there's enough information to uh, to support you know at the very least because there's even stories on official record of uh, British journeys up there where the natives would meet them at the shore almost expecting like a trade to happen when the British were kind of just like what are they doing they would just get mad and throw stuff and, and go back Like The the stories are like Obviously biased from the colonial perspective But it seemed to be like A ritualized thing Like, like they ha- ha- were familiar With ships enough to be like Okay let's go to the shore and wait for them um, But the English wouldn't Respond the same way the Norwegians Would so they just d- It didn't amount to anything but a strange interaction
0: Well it's definitely true That the the Scandinavian peoples were coming here for quite a while. I mean, there was a village they recently found, you know, somewhere in, like, Newfoundland or whatever Mm. that was, I don't know, like, over a thousand years old or whatever, and, you know, that's... Columbus was not the first. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, if you really get into, like, the, the shadow history... We realized that Columbus was working from other people's source material, which is how he ended up out here in the first place. Mm. Um, or why he was so confident that he could get to the West Indies mm. here, because he was he was interpreting other people's source material, I and mean, he was misinterpreting it, but it was, you know, he <laughs> he's not the first. Right. Uh, the, the reason we consider them, him the first is really just for political reasons. It has to do with manifest destiny and all that stuff. Right. Um, And then, of course, there's uh, Viking runestones that are in the upper Midwest. For example, the Kensington runestone comes to mind in Mm. Minnesota. And that supposedly comes from the year like 847 or 849. Now, a lot of archaeologists will say it's a hoax. Um, I don't think it is. (laughs) But, uh, yeah. And, you know, before the. before the Vikings I mean there's there was the red ochre people who were up the uh, northeast coast of North America and I think there was also a red ochre culture in Scandinavia right so there's this idea I that think the,
2: that's exactly what uh, I was referencing like the the conversation I was listening to they were talking specifically about because now that you say red ochre that comes to mind like I'm sort of reminded of it so yeah I'll I'll have to send you a link to that if you're interested. Definitely. But yeah, I don't know much about it. I'd like to know more about where you're going with uh, the Lenape and the herbs. I feel like I brought you down a different tangent than oh, sure. where you're going.
0: Um, so you want a sacred herbs in particular? Yeah,
2: like I know they grow a bunch of tobacco here now, but has that always grown here, or, or there, were there other plants that no, took that t- role?
0: Samar- ceremonial tobacco is not native to Eastern North America. Right. I mean, well, I don't know about Eastern America broadly, but not not to these regions. Uh, okay, that was something that was dispersed through trade. <coughs> um, may or may not have been domesticated. You know, whatever you, whatever baggage you, you know, un- unpack with that word. But um, you know, it, what is clear is that the uh, smoking in a pipe is probably only one among many ways that tobacco was ceremonially used.
3: Hmm.
0: <clears throat> um, and probably not the most common way at all, but it's it's what caught on among the Europeans. Hmm. So that's what we do today.
2: Um,
0: yeah, as far as other-
2: Any I, sage I, I, or sweet grass or?
0: Well, I'm gonna back away from the Lenape specifically because hmm. you know, here in the Susquehanna River, first of all, um, This isn't traditionally Lenape territory, but Lenape folks certainly, you know, came came to these parts. But, um, I'll just think more bioregionally, you know, what are are sacred plants in this (coughs) bioregion? And, uh, yeah, to be honest, not too much has come into mind, unless you want to get really obscure.
2: Mm. No, I, I'm just. There were
0: all kinds of teas. I mean, pretty much everything around here had some kind of um, tea or medicine use.
2: Hmm. And not much of that made its way into the German Protestant culture that's settled here. They don't really have much of a herbalism, or do they?
0: Oh, they, they do. Yeah? And this is more shadow history. So the hmm. Mennonite communities. Um, and not specifically the Mennonites, but the older German communities. So, you know, there was a while in, like, the 1600s and 1700s where one of the official languages of Pennsylvania was basically German. You, know, you can go to Berks County and go to all these um, old cemeteries where everything's in German. Because hmm. it is largely German colonization that came, came to a lot of places around here.
2: My last name is German... Uh from pennsylvania they emigrated from germany to pennsylvania steves is my last name but it used to be steve which is uh i think means either stone or um some other huh. general word
0: so anyway uh, among these old german especially uh Manani communities you had the, the brocker tradition <laughs> <coughs> so brockers are healers <coughs> and there's practicing brockers today and they would practice a kind of um medicine called powwow right so there's the the book the, the powwow books and if you ever experience healing from brocker it's much more shamanic than any than you know shamanic is the closest word we can come to hmm. like know, an energy contemporary healing. modern context to understand what it is because it's very energetic hmm. you know it's like um yes there's some working with it Yes, there's some like body work. Yes, there's some um, diagnosis or whatever. But it's mo- it's it's more subtle than that. It's more energetic, and it's it's uh, a lot of it's working with uh, spirits and, and forces and things like that. Um, and Brockers will go into trance to do their work. Um, they're acquainted with old. Old order herbalism that comes from the European tradition, like the old, old European tradition. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the uh, some of that herbal knowledge has been preserved by European culture on okay. this continent. It's, it's also been uh, reinterpreted.
3: Hmm.
2: Are there any plants that stand out? to you that, like, you particularly, um, you know, as you wander through the woods, and as you, like, which plants were you drawn to initially?
0: I'm, I'm, I'm pretty drawn towards just, like, the food plants
2: mm. in
3: general. Right.
0: Yep, like, staple roots, staple nuts, staple greens. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I appreciate um the medicinal qualities of our plant relatives as well um, although i would not describe myself as an herbalist um yeah and then ceremonially um there's some plants i grow in the garden which again are not strictly native here but i grow Yopon holly for example in out here on the land and that's um, a native of the southeast uh, Ilex vomitoria, and it's uh, it's got more caffeine than coffee, hmm. so it's a highly caffeinated plant. And so the the Muscogee and the, the Greek Creek peoples down in the southeast, um, and also the, the Cherokee in the mountains, the Sawagi in the mountains, they um, they they had a relationship with the uh, the Yopan. and um, I think Dahoon is another not sure if it's the same exact plant or a slightly similar species, but it's the same um, same qualities. And so they would make it into a black tree. They would just really steep these leaves, really concentrate, and so you have this super potent caffeinated thing and um, I guess they would just drink huge amounts of it and they would purge, you know, and vomit and just go into trance. Wow. And it seems like tobacco was similar too. Like we use tobacco today to get like a nicotine rush or a nicotine fix but like Rustica was pretty you know, had a lot of nicotine content and you know smoking is probably the, the least effective way to, to take it if you really want to have like a a uh <laughs> entheogenic experience with tobacco probably the best way to, would be to mix it with an alkalizing agent like another plant you know and then chewing it
2: hmm. Now is there a right relationship that somebody can form with the environment in a in a meaningful way is that what you're aiming for to help redefine or help people realize that or is this something that you're doing, you know, for your own soul? Like how how expanded do you see this going? You mentioned earlier like someone taking over or, or more people coming to to join in the mission. Like is that part of what you're doing i realize i just asked you like three questions at sure. once but whichever one you take your pick
0: i mean at the end of the day i'm doing it for me hmm. um but you know i love other people and be great if this place this vision whatever speaks to somebody else and they want to be part of it
2: now considering the the people listening you know once this is uploaded and whatnot Maybe not everyone's going to ever make it even to Pennsylvania, let alone this part of Pennsylvania. Do you have any thoughts or advice for for people who are in their backyard and want to begin a journey like the one you've taken on? (laughs)
0: <laughs> i don't know you, i don't know if you want to be on the same journey <laughs> i'm trying to get out of it yeah i'm just kidding <laughs> no but i mean you know I'm, I'm i'm pretty pretty firmly on the plant path and you know uh, if you want to really tune in to your, your plant relatives you got to start with where you're at hmm. it's not something you need to travel for you know just right. your own backyard is enough I would just start tuning in, listening, learning who's around you. Um, you know, well, you know, there's a, the, the pros and cons of the Internet these days, right? You know, we've got a lot of information at our fingertips. We've got apps that can tell us what everything is. You know, and they, we've, got, um, you know we've got a bird app, you know, from, from Cornell. The, and we've got, you know, plant ID apps. You know, you, you can figure out what all this stuff. But then the, the, the difficult piece, and not difficult, and it's, it's hard, but you really have to put yourself in that space. It's forming a relationship. Um, and so that can just be, you know, just sitting in your backyard and opening yourself up. Um, when it gets to actually learning, learning plants on a more deeper level, like once you can start to recognize them and you know who they are, uh, the next step, to go deeper, is to tune into their whole life cycle. <coughs> so you want to, you know, if you think you know an oak tree, do you also know an acorn? You know, do you know the way an acorn sprouts? The way it sends its roots down? You know when it, like, what, when it sprouts? Does it sprout in the fall? Does it sprout in the spring? Does it send a root down before it comes up above ground, or does it go above ground first before it sends a root, or does it happen at the same time? And then, um, do you know when oaks flower? Because oaks do have flowers, right? And they they have sex just like all of us in the air with the, you know, <laughs> with the, the pollen blowing around right. in the breeze and you know, being received by the flowers that can then take that and form it into an acorn and you know you know like, like there, there's all these ins and outs that right. you can only learn through relationship with a thing um but you know there's plants in the woods like ramps like the, the wild leeks they're really popular these days um because they, they taste good and, um, you know some some places they can be quite abundant and really fill up the, uh, the forest understory and but a lot of people just go out in the spring when they're up and they'll take some leaves, or maybe they'll dig some bulbs. Um, but those those plants actually flower in now. You know, they're they're flowering now in July, um, July and early August. But it's more like June into July, I should say. And of course, it depends on where you are. If you're up in Vermont, they might be flowering in August. But you know, here they're they're flowering now. Um, <clears throat> And so, you know, in the spring they send up these leaves and then they die back by May or June. And then after the leaves have died back, about a month later, they send out this little umbel, this little onion umbel in the, in the woods. It, you know, it's got white flowers. And then all of those, uh, those umbels will then make seeds and the seeds will be ripe in the middle of September. And then you'll go out when the snow is on the ground and, you know, these little desiccated brown onion flowers are sitting up there, and sometimes they're still holding on to the little black seeds in in their inflorescence. And the seeds will, like, fall on top of the snow, right? And then they go through their cycle, and then they take 18 months to germinate. So if, if those seeds drop in the fall, they're not going to germinate the following spring, but the spring following. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it takes five years from that point for that plant to grow up until it's old enough that it can flower and make more seeds <coughs> so it's it's that's what i'm trying to get at it's like this long perspective right you know it's it's one thing to know the name of a plant it's another thing to know its way of life right its pattern its shape you know what it likes what it doesn't like mm. How it matures, how it develops, how it communicates—you know, all all, all these things—and that's that's the the bigger piece,
2: right? This course that we took, what was the name of it? With uh, the gentleman in in Woodbridge, the older guy, oh, I don't know, was that right. macro nutrition or yeah. something like that? Yeah. When you're describing the life cycle of a plant and the dynamics of you know each individual plant. It reminds me of what we learned from this gentleman who taught us about asian cuisine and how the movement of the plant is considered in the dish so you pair certain vegetables with each other based on their movement uh as they grow so you would to have a nice balanced dish you'd want like a plant that grows its bulb down into the earth a plant that comes up and then grows a fruit out and down you know and you sort of balance these different movements in the dish and each dish has uh miso as like the um uh, probiotic sort of digestive aid and then rice of course is like the super staple according to to this logic rice is the most evolved plant because it's evolved alongside of humans longer than any other plant because of the asian you know the the Continuity of the Asian culture, right? That's his theory. I don't know how right, that stands. Rice does have one of the
0: most extensive genomes we've mm. been able to look at in any, in any kind of plant. Uh, mm. And that's that's because of its relationship with humans. Mm. Um, but I don't know if that means that something's more evolved or not.
2: Right. Well, and I guess why I was describing all that is to lead to the question of like how much of the movement of the seasons is considered with like the way you eat now you know because you're foraging yeah it's,
0: it's a great point i mean that what you're saying makes perfect sense i mean you know when, when you're harvesting plants you're harvesting energy mm. i mean when, well when you're harvesting when you're taking any food in you're taking in energy right right and so you want to be sure of what kind of energy you're receiving for a plant because a plant is focusing its energy in different ways during different seasons. Right. So for example, in the spring, when those first leaves come out and they're just like that really pale lime green, it's like that fresh spring green that you never see again. You know, it, it comes out and then it just gets darker and darker. <laughs> when, you, when you get leaves at that stage, like all that energy is in that leaf. So you, you want to be eating leaves in the spring, right? Now the fall is the opposite. They're getting ready to drop off. You know, they, everything's the plant's preparing for harder times. So it's taking, it's re- it's collecting all of its energy. It's recycling its energy from the leaves. That's why, you know, the tree leaves turn you know, colors in the fall. They're taking all those sugars out of the leaf, and they're putting them down into the roots, mm-hmm. right? And so, if it's a bulb plant, like a like a potato is a good example, right? Like you don't. Know, You don't dig your potatoes in the spring. I mean, you you could if you left them in the ground over the winter. And and that'd be fine. Uh, It's not my my point. Like, um, you know, the the potato grows its, uh, you know, green green leaves and everything. And then it's putting all that energy down into the roots.
3: Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And then later, when that, that energy is harnessed... You can, you can go and dig the root. Right, yeah. So the, 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 the ramp, the, the wild leek, would be a good example. Like A lot of people will dig the bulbs in the spring, but there's no reason to do that because you're actually, that's the wrong time to harvest a ramp bulb. You should only be harvesting the leaves in the spring. If you want the bulbs, go in the middle of September, in the fall, and dig them then because all that energy is in the bulb. And then you can leave the seeds behind in the patch And you're, you know, the patch... Replenishing, yeah. You're replenishing the patch, right? It's just simple things like that that change the whole thing. Right. I can go into a ramp patch in September, and I can harvest every single one that has a seed head. Every single bulb that has a seed head, and leave all the seeds behind. Yeah. And I've actually left that patch better than when I arrived.
2: Now... Pairing what you're saying now with what you're describing yesterday with the map making. Like, how beautiful would it be to see a map that takes that information into account so people can participate in that process and enhance the land, replenish the land by seeing it, you know, in a new way through a map and realizing, like, okay, this little nook here in my backyard has uh, this particular root leak or what is it ramp leak you know let me go there in you know spring and the maps like bright and green you can tell clearly when you're looking at that spot that it's like a spring spot that's where you go in spring when you live in this area and each spot might have now of course you know the natural landscape isn't going to lend itself perfectly to a diagram you know equally but you. You kind of see where I'm going with that. Have you?
0: Well, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, the it's sort of like fake it till you make it, mm. right? You need you need a guide mm. in time, and you know, absent uh, a human mentor or elder, um, we've got books and we've got maps and we've got things like that. But it's important to remember that the map isn't the territory. Mm. The map is just a guide mm. to help you understand maybe what you're seeing. Maybe you're not seeing that. Maybe you're seeing something totally different and the map isn't so helpful anymore. Um, I mean, a lot of native cultures around the world are oral. And I I believe that's the best way to transmit knowledge because, yeah, I don't come to you and just start saying stuff off the top of my head and it's all abstract and you're sitting there like trying to memorize it. It's all
3: embodied.
0: Hmm. It's like when when you just grow up as a kid and you just learn this is that and this is this and here's how I interact with this here's how I interact with that like you're not you're not learning things from like this cold detached standpoint you're actually being introduced into relationship by your elders and your family members mm. like they already have all these relationships you're like oh I want you to meet this this <laughs> being oh okay and, and you just you just interact naturally from you know a space of relationship and you know relationship is all embodied Right? So it's, it's not something you have to memorize in your head because you've got you know, your hands to remember. You're like, mm. Oh well, I interact with it this way, I take my hands this way. You know, and um,
2: makes it a somatic experience. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Gets it out of your head. Like some people ask me, like, how do you memorize all this stuff? I'm like, I don't. You see it. <laughs> I just it's it's just all embodied. Like if right, you ask right, me about right, any right. plant, like I'm not like recalling some broken facts, I'm just thinking about Dealing with that front, and then there's all kinds of details that I can I can bring out. So yeah, I, I think uh, you know we, we got to use the tools that we have today. Um, use everything you got. You know, use the internet, use books, use maps. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, we also want to know where we're going, and it's it's good to have a vision for the, uh, for the future.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I I like what you say about the oral tradition being the organic, you know, sort of, or at least how I interpret it, it's the organic way, you know, it's the real way of of passing knowledge from one to another.
3: Hi, hi.
2: And, uh, I mean, what we're doing right now with the podcast, you know, people don't see my podcast on a huge billboard or something, they find it synchronistically, They, they happen upon it. And hits them where it needs to you know certain pieces of the information in the conversation might resonate with them and then another person resonates with a different set of information but it's all happening you know between you and i and then expanding like a fractal as more and more people listen to it you know
0: i love that thought i was listening to a podcast the other day where uh this author named sophie strand was being interviewed Mm. And she said that the thing she loves about podcasts is that they create ecologies of knowledge, mm. ecologies of conversation. I never thought of it, about it that way before. It's like, if you just write a book, it's, the book is the same way every time you read it. Like, the text is just the same. But if you have um, an interview with somebody on five different podcasts, that same um, person... It's going to bring out all kinds of different you know, stories depending on who they're interacting with and then of course you got the relationship of this podcast to that podcast they,
3: right.
2: they,
0: they all they all kind of interconnect and you know uh, start telling inter- the story
2: well let me ask you this have you been on a podcast before this
0: yeah i've been on a few
2: right on huh? so what uh, do you generally talk about when people invite you to, to be on the podcast? I don't know,
0: whatever they want to. Th- yeah, <laughs> it's their podcast. Okay. They want to talk about, but it's it's inevitably it's about plants. <laughs> right on. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Wow. I feel like, uh, yeah. I mean, there there's a few more places I'd like to go. I don't want to exhaust everyone, but uh, as long as you'll you'll give us, there's the the part about maps too. That, you know, this is something you're working on, however much you're willing to divulge. I don't know if you want to tell us a little bit about, but I like the concept that you shared with us of inverting uh, what we know of a from a map, right? Instead of focusing the, you know, putting the focus on the, the man-made sort of scars, you're showing people the actual nature the landscape by focusing on trails and creeks rather than roads and highways and you know neighborhoods and things like that
0: yeah sure i mean it, it's it's something i'd like to do it's, it's just in my head right now i haven't actually sat down and hmm. started to create a physical map but um yeah like i shared with you yesterday you pick up a road atlas or a you know a standard map or whatever and you see the Political boundaries, hmm. right? Like Pennsylvania shapes like this. Okay, that's weird. You know, then you got, uh, and then you know, you've got some geographical stuff like and the names of rivers are on the map, and you know, like the shapes of rivers, and you know, oh, this over here. But mostly, what you see is roads, political distinctions. You know, here's Pennsylvania, here's Maryland, here's Virginia, here's. Uh, New York. Here's Connecticut. Here's New Jersey, um, and then you'll see the highways, and the highways. You know, you've got the major highways, then the minor highways, then the roads, then the subdivisions, and you know, that's that's how our maps are oriented these days. Hmm. But you can invert that and focus on the natural features. So you've got creeks everywhere, and you've got hills, you know, and you've got. Um, you know, large bodies of water and um, small bodies of water and, you know, all there there's a connection. So, you know, if you ever go on Google Maps, especially in an area like the Mid Atlantic and you where we've got a lot of natural forest, um, you can go on satellite mode and look up some neighborhood. And here you'll see this sprawl of, you know, this neighborhood and there's some cul-de-sacs and all this stuff. And in the spine all around the neighborhood is this green. And that's woods, right? So you got the positive space and the negative space. So the positive space is all of the, the roads and the houses and the towns and all that. The negative space is all the woods, right? You know, so like living here along the Mason-Dixon Trail, which connects to the Appalachian Trail, which literally means that my house is connected to Georgia and to Maine and to everywhere in between, and then it's also connected almost to Philadelphia because the Mason Dixon Trail ends in Chadds <coughs> And then there's other regional trails like the Horseshoe Trail and the Brandywine Trail and things like that. Um, you know, and then you can connect from the Appalachian Trail to like the SiouxCanoe C&O um, Trail, you know, like. I could hop on the trail from here to the Appalachian Trail, down to Harper's Ferry, and then I can go to the C&O Canal Trail, and that'll take me all the way out to Ohio, um, out to Pittsburgh, and you know, then been, and there's the Ohio River. I can follow the Ohio River all the way down to where it meets, meets the Mississippi. I can go down to Mobile, Alabama that way, right? And it's just like these, these natural... Um, these natural pathways that exist, it's just that our standard maps don't keep track of that. So what I'd love to do is get like a USGS printout of this lower Susquehanna region, you know, like a topographical map so you can see all the terrain and everything. But no, no labels, no roads. Uh, and maybe I'll include roads, just no names of the roads, just like where they are. Um, and just get it printed out so it's like, you know, 20 feet wide by like 10 feet high. And I could just like set it out and like just work it in by hand and like you know here's this stretch of woods here, here's this patch of this here, here's this trail here, you know here's foot trails and then you mm-hmm. populate that map with foot trails and you know, you can um, mark out natural areas of interest, things like that. Mm. I think I think that'd be a lot of fun.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like it would be cool to see your knowledge of the plants come through in that map, like where, you know, certain groves of this plant are, what I, you know. I am clearly don't have the, the language to <laughs> give you any examples, but what you're saying about Peach Bottom, that's a place further down on the Susquehanna where they grew a bunch of peaches, right? Yep. Not anymore, I presume, but...
0: No, I mean, not anymore now. Okay. I mean, I guess it was, you know... <laughs> uh,
2: back in
3: the day yeah
2: back in the
0: day
3: <laughs> right
2: yeah are there any specific areas right now that you go to outside of the immediate like property here that you are excited to be able to put on a map like that like any places that you f- visit often in the greater area
0: i mean a good example would be Pibon Island. Mm. Which is, it's in walking distance of here. Okay. Um, but I
2: think we walked onto Wildcat Island because I did take a look on the map, and what Google Earth calls Wildcat Island is where Mike took us yesterday. So today. you had to cross some
0: rocks yeah. to get out to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wildcat's right off Peavine Island, but Peavine is an old timer name for the groundnut, mm. the Apios americana. Okay. Which is still to be found quite extensively all over Peavey Island. So hmm. you know, it's kind of like these old timer names are talking names, and not right. that the uh, the groundnut was so abundant and noticeable on the island that they named the island after it. Hmm. Right. So that's a good it's a good getting place for groundnut. It's a good place to continue to tend and live
2: alongside
0: the, the groundnut.
2: Hmm. There were flowers out on that rock that were taller than me, and you guys, I mean, I'm 6'8", so this thing was at least seven <laughs> feet tall, this purple, pinkish flower. That's and, the
0: purple loosestrife.
2: Okay, is that the one you mentioned going all the way, that goes all the way out to the Mississippi, or is that local to here? Uh, loosestrife?
0: Um, I mean, it's it's exotic, it's mm. not a native plant. Okay, uh,
2: yeah, that, maybe I'm Mississippi sure was Mississippi, a different. Yeah, I did. I do think you mentioned that earlier. There is a cool
0: plant um, called uh, water willow, Hmm. Justicia americana, which uh, has a really similar range to pawpaw, Hmm. the the Simmona triloba. So if you're down in Florida, there's like eight species of pawpaw. And then, as soon as you leave Florida and you start to go north, I mean, for a little bit you got like uh, a similar flora and then uh, another species of pawpaw. But, you know, once, once you get above Georgia, it's it's pretty much all just the one species of pawpaw. And it will go all the way up in New Jersey, all the way to New York, or where, you know, ever. I mean, the, the range is higher now because of human dispersal and climate change. Um, but. It's, it's a tropical member hmm. that's just out in the northern latitudes. So it's, okay. just, it's just out there. So the the water will is the same way. Like if you go down to the tropics, like the Gulf Coast and stuff, there's more species of it. Hmm. And as soon as you leave, it's just one species. And it's all the way, it's you know just like just like pawpaw. It's up north. And it's, it's all over the river here. Hmm. All over the Susquehanna. Are
2: there any unique Like animals or insects that have a symbiotic relationship with any plants that are like worth noting when you're thinking about the energy of the plant, or
0: well, the pawpaw has its own butterfly,
2: okay, zebra
0: swallowtail. Wow. So maybe maybe you've seen them when you've been around here. I think she found a zebra. Yesterday. I
2: think yeah. I think you even found a wing from one of those. It's like a zebra pattern on the wing. Yep. Yeah, we, we found it on the white. trail, mm. huh?
0: Yeah. So the the larvae of the zebra swallowtail exclusively feed on tobacco. Mm. So it's it's like the monarch butterfly to milkweed.
2: Oh, cool.
3: Um, Dino was saying uh, she hasn't seen as many butterflies this year. Is that is that right or wrong?
0: I don't know. I mean, I I've been seeing a, f- a few, uh, but yeah, I think in general everything's going down here. Yeah
2: really
0: sad. Mm. Yeah, every, everything's
2: gone down now on that note do you think that uh, you can make a significant impression on this part with your ecological you know know-how and, and what you're doing I mean because that is the the, I mean, the reality we're all facing on all corners of the globe is like you know we're seeing the destruction and the the, the uh, thinning out of the diversity of our biomes, right?
0: Yeah. At this point, I don't know that we can um, delude ourselves that we're going to save anything. Hmm. Um, all we can do is, you know, what comes naturally, the, you know, the right thing, or, or whatever. You know, I I. Um, I mean, yeah. In a sense, because I'm actively planting certain species, sure. You know, I'm, I'm helping those species proliferate at least you know in, the, in this region but there's so much more that i can't control right you know it's just sort of like knowledge like you think you know something but you know the more you know the more you know what you don't know yeah yeah <laughs> so the, the little bit of things that i'm working with it's like yeah i'm holding on to them and i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna try to take them all with me hmm. as they've carried me with them but uh no, I can't. I can't rightly pretend that I'm actually saving anything. Hmm. I think it's important for us to acknowledge that.
2: Are you familiar with uh, Edward Abbey? Mm. Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, you remind me of uh, uh, the book Monkey Wrench Gang. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> right on. Well, thank you. <laughs> you know, like with the dams, yeah. like not not implicating any of us, but I would be. Happy to see those dams blow away, so to speak. You know? So would I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if I can
0: if I can live to see the day when the dams are gone, I will be happy. I mean, this this was a shad river. Mm. I mean, the shad used to run on this river in the millions. Mm. And you can go out on a moonlit night and all the surface of the water would be shimmery and silver because wow. it was the backs of the shad. And they used to have these these guys called moon rakers that would go out with these hand nets. It's just like a big simple hoop. You'd yeah. go out on the boats at night and just <laughs> scoop the, scoop the fish up right you know with, with these nets well that's so abundant
2: that's like the the thing I hear too up in New England when you read a lot of the history of you know the natives and the colonists interaction with them they talk about you know the river being so flush with salmon that you could skip across it yep. you know like you could walk on the back of the fish yeah there's so many yeah of them. we
0: used to have passenger pigeons. Right. They were flocks that were so it would block out large the sun. it would take 13 minutes for them to fly a <laughs>
2: red. Yeah, like a, like a passing blimp or something. <laughs>
0: so think about the nutrients. Think about all the right. manure from those passenger pigeons. Mm. It was like, people talk about it as like this big phosphorus pump, which mm. would really, um, just really rejuvenate the forests around here and help the trees grow like crazy you know and then think about the shad hmm. Think about all that all that fish energy right. just like giving its body to all the landscapes those the waterways they're swimming up
3: yeah but today <laughs> i mean behind those dams there's a whole lot of uh nuclear sediment you know are you
2: familiar with uh tmi three mile island well yeah mike took us to um I forget the proper name for the area, but it's like this big, big area with rocks all in the river. You can jump from rock to rock, and the rocks have these like perfect circles in them, and it's only like a couple, oh, like a mile or two south from Three Mile Island. Do yeah. you know which rocks I'm talking about? Uh, you No, the no, like, Flats or something? Yeah, they're like very, very smooth. Mike has it, it's featured in his book, The Rights of the 40th Parallel. I think it's like the second or third location. But mm, right. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, like, by, you know, behind each of the dams is, like, a whole lot of nuclear sediment, mm-hmm. and it's like, if we you know, we would just be, like, asking for, you know, nuclear sediment to, like, cruise down the river, you know, that, and yeah. that's, I mean, I get what you're saying, like, I'm totally for, like, sweeping away the dams, hmm. but I feel like until we can, uh, you know, deal with that that sediment. was just like i don't yeah. think we should I, don't, I really don't think we should uh, get rid of the dams mm. yeah
2: well and i was gonna ask you know the more you know the more you you learn you don't know kind of question because that's i mean the title of my podcast not the one that i do with mike but the title of my podcast is my family thinks i'm crazy because <laughs> i've been i've been into this stuff for a long time so i All guess right. the the large you know looking at this from uh bird's eye view question is do you think that uh there's a certain like conspiratorial angle with the dams like holding the wild energy and restraining it and you know taking the the inheritance of the land away from the people who were originally here
0: yeah of course i mean it has to do with the myths we tell ourselves the Mm. stories we tell ourselves right if you don't tell a story I mean the natives of this land would have told a story about the river and how much abundance she offered, hmm. all the oysters, hmm. all the shad, right. all the bear, all the bison, all the fowl, all the persimmons, all the pawpaws, all the hickories, all the mulberries, all the all right. the plants, all the ground nuts, all, all that stuff. <clears throat> You know, you would have had a story for each one of these beings. You know, like in the creation story, like the wooden machine creation story, the small one falling through the hole in the sky and then you know, being by the Canada geese, well, being seen by the loon and then caught by the Canada geese and carried down onto the back of the turtle and then the muskrat comes and brings up soil and, you know, and then she grows the corn and the, um, the strawberries and, you know, all this stuff. Like all the beings of creation are involved in these stories together. So, like, you know, if that's how you grow up, you're not gonna just like try to genocide Canada East one day because you're like, well, who's gonna carry, who's gonna cradle Sky Woman down onto the back of the turtle, mm-hmm. right. right? And so we we've told ourselves this myth of industrial progress mm-hmm. that the world is just dead matter, and you know, oh look at that, look at that river. Uh, If only we could just stop it and utilize all that energy to spin a turbine so we can can do electron mining. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Right. It's a totally different story that creates these worlds.
2: Yeah. There's a totally different mindset that, you know, thinks like, oh, I could just set up a dam here and own this. Energy. You know, this energy's mine now because I had the funds to build the dam and the materials and the people to do it for me and, and at the, the
0: time this dam was built, the Hope Dam, I think in like 1921 or something like that. Maybe even been like nineteen twelve, Yeah, nineteen twelve. It's yeah. old. It was the largest hydroelectric dam in the world
3: hmm.
0: until, the, until they made the Hoover Dam. that was bigger. But this is like this is like a mega engineering feat here. Right. You know, now it's just this little humdrum thing that, like, is sort of in danger of yeah. collapsing if it's not properly maintained. And yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Now.
0: Human hubris. Human pride.
2: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It definitely makes me think of, uh, you know, this artificial energy, you know, proliferation. In opposed, or you know, when you look at the map, right, all of the major cities fall on this ley line. I don't know where you stand on ley lines, uh, no pun intended, uh, but the ley line that we're talking about is an indigenous, you know, recognized ley line that's culturally recognized, coming from Teotihuacan, going all the way up through it's called the Acadian. Line. It goes through New Orleans, uh, Richmond, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, Trenton, New York City, New Haven, Boston, right? The straight line through all these cities. I don't think that's an accident. You know, they called that Satan's axes yeah, back in the Wilmington,
0: Delaware, right? Mm, right. Where all, the, all the corporations <laughs> of the world go. Well, to have their tax haven? Yeah. It's like but, the belly of the beast, right?
2: Yeah, and but Satan's axes is like the um, colonial name for it because everything west of that was still native, you know, before they had colonized it. And you see all up in New England where that superstitious mindset was so prevalent, like certain areas will be called Devil's Den or Devil's Hop Yard. We have Devil's Neck, Devil's Forest, you know, there's Satan's... Uh, Gorge, or what's the what's the remember where <laughs> we're up in? Satan and Gorge. Yeah, what's the <laughs> what's the river you know on the Farmington River where the people uh do the tubing? It's like Satan something, it's weird. Farmington, river? yeah, Farmington, in- Connecticut. In- oh, okay, yeah, Farmington River, which is an interesting river, it, it kind of has a uh old history. It used to go all the way from north to south uh to the sound, but now it a mountain rose and it jetted north and then came back down into the Connecticut River Mm. Uh, but that that's a different story for a different day and there's
0: again it has to do with the stories you tell like Mm. if you come to Prairie in York County and you call it the Barrens what kind of (laughs) barren world
2: view
0: does that come out of what an impoverished way of living Mm. that you come to this beautiful grassland And all you can think is, it's barren.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Well, and that's that, like, Roman empirical mindset that, you know, conquered Europe and then made its way into the royal families and then all their, uh, what did they call them, charters. And uh, there's another word for it, colony. They would all put their money into these big... um, forget, but it's essentially a land claim, you know, and just have these companies of people. We're researching Skull and Bones in New Haven out of Yale University, and Yale is named after a guy uh, who worked for the Dutch East India Company, you know, shipping all kinds of stuff from China, and, and, you know, Skull and Bones has Geronimo's skull, which, you know, that's part of how I even came into all this stuff. They I'm, had Geronimo's club. Yeah. Like
0: Geronimo from the Nima Yeah. The Nez Perce. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So,
2: so when I I'm was sorry, no, he wasn't Nez Perce. Well, he
0: was Comanche, wasn't he? I don't know. No, I think he was Comanche.
2: I, I'm. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I was got him confused. If I had to guess off the top of my head, because I don't know for certain, but I, I've heard him as Apache, mm-hmm. but I could be wrong. But my friend Amos, who's from Arizona. um I met him in New Haven when I was 18, 19, going to college. Uh, And he saw this shirt I had that said, sure you could trust the government, just ask an Indian. Mm -hmm. And he was like, oh, okay, this guy knows a thing or two. So him and I started talking and he ended up teaching me so many different things. But the reason he moved from Arizona to New Haven was because of Geronimo's skull. Being taken from its grave in Oklahoma uh, and brought to Skull and Bones' tomb—that's what they call their little hideout headquarters in within Yale University. So he sort of made it his rite of passage to come to New Haven, pray for Geronimo's spirit, and uh, ended up teaching me a lot. And that's the biggest question that I've had. You know, we've learned a lot about Skull and Bones and all the different history and where this whole university system started and why it, you know, is what it is. Those are some of the questions we've been answering, but the biggest thing that stood out is, like, they took the head of someone who was, you know, considered, uh, like, a supernatural figure. Mm-hmm. You know, Geronimo could, like, take a bullet and not die. He could, like, decipher the codes of the army as they were Morse signaling to each other, Morse code.
3: He also... Uh hidden in a cave from uh the, the government trying to like get at him mm. and uh when they went in there uh to try and find him they found nothing mm. and he, he must have like disappeared
2: <laughs> walked yeah. through the stone <laughs> oh seriously man yeah. yeah but geronimo you know evaded capture for a long time he was never defeated in battle but he sort of uh surrendered and was imprisoned for the m- remainder of his life and you know shows. yeah brought along a, a carnival acts, and the whole carnival thing comes from connecticut too with pt barnum he was like the world's most famous showman mm-hmm. um but either way this skull ends up in new haven and you also have the anthropology departments of these universities that you know Eventually, are the types of characters that you described earlier with potentially grabbing some of these petroglyphs and hiding them away in private collections? Well, where are they collecting them? Yale University, right? Like, they have some of the biggest collections of African, Native American, Asian, European ancient artifacts. Like, they don't, not specifically focusing just on Native Americans, but they're doing something with all this cultural energy, just the you know, I think it's it's sort of like a kingmaker thing, right? Like, Geronimo, even though there was no king of the Native Americans, they wouldn't have even recognized that term as, you know, a thing. They had the confederacies, and there were people who were in charge and so on, but it wasn't a kingship. There was no royalty. There was special, you know, blood. There was lineages, but, you know, Geronimo was the closest thing to, like, a... Uh, a king head in North America according to Amos who taught me this kind of stuff um, and that's why they took his head and they keep it in New Haven along that Satan's Axis which is like their control of the energy of this part of North America I don't know how that has expanded out west outside of the university system but I mean the university system at Yale created the types of you know um, practices that these power companies that build these dams are using. You know, what I mean, the shale, shale uh, fracking. Right, that whole practice was innovated by Yale University. So, and those that Sheffield Science School that did that was inextricably a part of Skull and Bones. Like these moneyed uh, elite families from Connecticut who had a lot of appreciation for the native culture. they
0: Yeah, it hasn't, Mike, didn't Mike say that Skull and Bones goes back to the days of the pirates? Yeah. Well, he, and he had that, uh, what they call that flag? With skull Jolly and Roger. Jolly Roger. Yeah, and they right. still have he that had, flag. He like, had Blackbeard the pirate, whose name was Edward Teach. Mm. And so his name was Teach because he was literate, he was educated, he was from the English aristocracy. Mm. And so he was related to Mary Tudor. Mm. Mary was educated, <laughs> she was literate, she was from the... Aristocracies. So you had this whole culture of basically like upper class English people strolling the high seas for booty, you know, yeah. <laughs> flying the flying well, the skull and bones, and it's still it's still what they're doing today. You know? Yeah, <laughs> huh. yeah, man. How many presidents are members of Skull and Bones? Well, all of them,
2: some <laughs> <are>. <laughs> definitely some of them. There's, I mean, the, the list is or. definitely in the double digits. But as of recently, you know, Skull and Bones, it, it would be the Bush family. Uh, some people say Obama's related to the Bushes through a, uh, like a second cousin, uh, but no, it, George W. Bush Jr. would be the last Skull and Bones president. And Bill Clinton was a graduate of Yale Law School, which is on the same street, which it's not a car driving street. It's like a walking path street. Uh, there's only one section that you can drive on, and it's the section that goes right past their tomb, um, but that's like sort of like in a Roman sense like the walkway of death like you would like have your church and then the graveyard right so like you, you are coming to the world through the church you die and then you're taken to the graveyard right so that's kind of the concept with New Haven they have like skull and bones on this same street as the Native American Cultural Center as the art museum that has all of the different artifacts. And it's all leading you to the graveyard, which has an archway that says the dead shall be raised. And there's uh, several different, you know, famous people through like important American historical figures buried in that cemetery. Um, But yeah, Geronimo's skull is, is on that same sort of energy path in the tomb for whatever reason. And
0: there's also been skull cults, I mean, back in the Neolithic, back mm. Like, in Beklitepi, and Höyük uh, and mm. Turkey, you know, they had, they would collect skulls and put them under these stone tablets, and, you know, I don't know why, but... <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it seems like some kind of way to, like, claim ancestry. Mm. Or, like, claim ancestors. Right. Like, like, even in the Bible, there's, like, this story of, like, the Israelites, and they're, you know, going from... I guess they've been uprooted from one place and they're going to another place and so they've dug up the bones of their saints and they're carrying them with them. Because mm. it's like, well, I don't know where we're going but we got to have our ancestors with us. Right. Because there's an understanding that there's power attached to, to that. Mm. But uh, yeah, it, it's sort of a tangent but all this talk reminds me <laughs> of like, the, the origins of the United States. Mm. The United States is a political system comes from the Haudenosaunee and other native cultures right. on this continent and Right. it's sort of like it's like the dual, the, dual, the dual nature of reality Right. you got the black history and the white history
2: well Yale University the precedes the history of the United States in the sense that it like you know was founded in 1717 so a lot of the guys that were a part of the American Revolution were founded with this mindset uh, that we're describing, but yeah.
0: Yeah, the, the, the reason um, the native elders taught you know the colonists mm. the way of democracy, it wasn't so, hey, you guys can go create your own democracy. It was an invitation into theirs. Right. So, you know, when, it, when it began, this was, this was supposed to be a brotherhood. Mm. It was supposed to be this great union coming together. And instead, we said, thanks, <laughs> cut the rope, and went in our own direction
2: with it. Right. Yeah. And that was that, like, materialist death first. We, you know, are divinely, you know, inherited by God, and you folks don't believe in the same God as us, so that gives us the justification to do this. That's the, the mindset that was cultivated in a community like New Haven mm-hmm. and Boston, this puritanical uh and you know there's a lot of mixing that went on in that area between the native consciousness and the the european consciousness like the shakers and the quakers they're kind of like our version of the mennonites they don't exist as deeply as they do here you know uh but there are some communities like that in massachusetts and like one in connecticut i don't think there's really any in connecticut anymore but you know it's it's like a you know, what my thought is, and that's why I love talking about plants for a long time, is because that's where we have sort of hit an obstacle, you know, understanding that. Because what I've noticed is Harvard and Yale, they blended with the native consciousness and took that herbal knowledge away from them, they took that shamanic power away from them and created this, like, Yale University, Harvard University, medical school, because a, a surgeon in those days was the same, just like you were saying a brocker, a surgeon was the same thing. I mean, they, they practiced a lot of the things we would consider shamanistic today, not like, they weren't actually sawing people's legs off uh, like we think of now. They were, uh, you know, looking for the best way to heal somebody, you know, and that meant learning the plants in the land and for whatever reason it was a you know not a mutually beneficial I mean I think we know why but it it wasn't a mutually beneficial agreement you know they took you know they took advantage of the native consciousnesses willingness to share you know that's I think Yale University and Harvard like they they're sort of guilty in a lot of ways um and it's it's like a curse almost like it's coming back to bite them because they're holding all these artifacts in their museums and they're presenting the history of America in a certain way and the archaeologists are also sort of implicitly like like not recognizing something as huge as the Susquehanna petroglyphs right or that sort of logic and
0: I'm glad I'm glad they don't have their attention on
2: well, and, and in a certain sense, it helps those it things stay, stay preserved, yeah, right, and, and I mean, it's unfortunate because there are all these Manitou stones that existed in New England that got collected by these types of groups, mm-hmm. and, you know, what that was was like a, a human-shaped stone, like it looked... Maybe it was a naturally formed, or maybe somebody came along and worked it to look that way, but it had the appearance of a, a human shape, right? Shoulders, legs, a head, and they were usually carved out of quartz, and they are left in certain sacred spots. And yeah. Ezra Stiles, who's like a big-time Yale University, you know, someone who was important in, in their history, he collected those. He, he's known to put a, you know, a bunch of them all in one room. Who knows what that does for your your spiritual energy, right? Having all these like sacred stones, or because you take them out of their setting, are they just like, you know, almost like diffused? You know, like do they only have the power that they have because they're in their natural setting, like tapping in? Mm-hmm. You know, um, like a battery in its socket. You know, you take a battery out of its socket, it's not doing anything. It's just holding that energy. You know, inside of it. You know, once you put it in something, and then comes to life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Sadly,
2: I mean, when you remove something
0: like that, you do
2: remove a lot of the
0: power. But there's still memory.
2: Hmm. Right. Both in the place and in well, the object that was. And that's place. like what you're saying about the skulls too. Is like having all that those artifacts in one room carries the memory of those things, and then you have these students coming. To this university to learn uh and they're like soaking in that energy and maybe not even being given the right perception of it um i don't know what effect that has on people maybe you could tell uh i'm a little jaded towards the universities but yeah i just feel like they 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 have something uh that they don't deserve you know like they're charging people to learn about these things that they themselves like stole mm-hmm. in a sense, but I could yeah, be biased.
0: The, the university today is a perversion of the old uh, master apprentice relationship. Mm. You know, think about the meaning of bachelor's. Mm. You have your bachelor's degree. What does that mean? <laughs> your bachelor's of arts, your bachelor's of science. But then, if you progress beyond the bachelor's, you have your master's. Wait, so one is a bachelor and one's a master? That has to do with the old um, journeyman tale. So, you know, back when you had the guilds in medieval Europe, right, you had a master of their craft, and you would go and apprentice under them. And then after you had learned all that you could from them, from them, you would go off on your own, and you would be a journeyman. Hmm. And then after a number of years or experiences or whatever... You would come into, you know, the level of knowledge to be considered a master in your own right, and that that's sort of like not something you declare on yourself; it's something other people recognize in you. Like you, you real, you, you're a master, when people start to show up for mm. you to, to be apprenticed, right? It's, mm. it's just that's sort of how it works. Right. Uh, doesn't mean that you know more necessarily, but it's just a different stage. It's A calling. Right. So you go from journeyman mm. to master, from, from apprentice to journeyman. To master mm. right and so you know the university system is undergraduate bachelors master and then the PhD is something different you know that's just a higher prestige over master but uh yeah that's 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 what it is or that's what it was it was this relationship system where you were a, you apprenticed under somebody <laughs> and then you became a bachelor you were a free man and would roam about and figure out you know how can i apply this to the real world how can i actually make this work do i actually know what i think i know do i actually can i actually do what i think i can do and you you're like okay it seems to be working out and you're, you're you go to your trade right you're, you're doing your trade number of years go by or maybe you just get the right gigs or whatever people start looking at you and they're like well i want to learn from that guy now you've got apprentices now the relationship continues right mm. So you know, we we took this really natural thing, we put a street jacket on it,
2: mm.
0: and said, <laughs> "Pay us uh, twenty thousand dollars a year, or else." <laughs> right,
2: right. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's uh, that's sort of like what going back to the oral tradition idea, the, I mean, the reason I dropped out of college was because I had a sort of synchronistic realization, partly through my mentorship, friendship with Amos, like, oh, I could learn from the world. I don't have to learn from this school. The school's yeah, limiting it. me. You know, just jump out in the world and, and take it from one job to the next and the next and the next, and eventually here I am. With the podcast and, and that really came from listening to podcasts and realizing like oh i could learn all this stuff i wanted to learn for uh, not just for free but also while i'm getting paid you know i found a job as a delivery guy and you know the whole route i was just listening to podcasts and you know now i work for a a pretty big podcast that helps me you know stay in this world rather than doing it like as a part-time job i kind of have a a full-time job in cool. podcasting, which is like, you know, it's a gift, a you know? Podcast, yeah. There. I mean, it, it's, I, it's, <laughs> I didn't <know> that <laughs> it's like it's truncated with like gigs within podcasting. So I'll help people out with certain things on their podcasts. And I also, you know, find guests, um, for a bigger podcast. That's how I get paid. Um, but yeah, people support me with this podcast and, and Mike and I have been doing, uh, the show that we're kind of recording right now, uh, for, I think about half a year now, yeah, seven months, eight months Hmm. or so. And it's become like a journey, like, you know, I just call him up or he'll call me up. If I'm home, I have it running through my mixer and, you know, we record the episode and it's sort of in the moment and, you know, there's a sort of journey story arc that's coming along and, uh, yeah, this is cool. This is sort of like, uh... The first time taking it out of that setting and bringing it into like a more authentic feeling, like I've only done two or three podcasts like this in person, mm-hmm. um, and they were it was never really my own podcast. It was I was always a guest on another podcast. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a yeah unique experience and and something I want to do more of, like taking the show to folks like yourself and and having like the. Temperature of the conversation felt rather than it all being like sterile over a computer, you know Or over a phone. There's like an atmosphere to this conversation that the rain the birds you your house your story You know and parts of this are gonna maybe even make their way into the Documentary that I'm working on about skull and bones So that's why I'm like talking so much about that topic because I want to bring that story out and show people the the beauty and the sadness the tragedy of Yale University and how they've desecrated Geronimo's grave and don't even talk about it anymore and those same people that did it were is
0: is Yale University was that the one founded by like uh, John Witherspoon
2: hmm it was John Davenport and um, and another Protestant minister uh, Puritan minister.
0: And one of them had a vision of an angel that was like ball lightning that appeared
2: to them. Hmm. He had a vision. There was, uh. I don't know that story. Maybe that's someone else, but I'd like to look into that. No. a crazy story. Yeah. <laughs> Can you. So is this a Witherspoon or do you. Are you thinking of Yale University? I, I don't know. It might be Davenport. Mm. I think it's Yale. Okay. But it was
0: one of the major Ivy Yeah. In, in New England.
2: Huh. And
3: this
0: guy was. Side and, I mean, his description when I hit my I'm like, oh, ball of lightning, you know, but he says an angel came to him and hmm. you know, appeared in this ball, this glowing ball of lightning and a voice came and basically, you know, told him some stuff. I forget what they said, but. Yeah. So.
2: do you? Does that sound familiar? I feel like we found a story like that in one of our books about Connecticut. Like ball lightning appearing to somebody and inspiring them to do something. It might not have been that same story, but I feel like we've come across that. I feel like Mike said that today. <laughs> no, I don't think so. We saw a lot of lightning today. It was a yeah. little it was a little spooky being in the Serpentine Barrens when the thunder started rolling in, because there's not a lot of tree cover out there, you know? But, yeah. I mean, the, the documentary is a little ways out, but it's going to include stuff like that you know the history of New England and and how that shaped the rest of the country's development and you know the person who took Geronimo's skull out of his grave was Prescott Bush George H.W. Bush's grandfather yeah and I found uh, I found out this stuff as I was a, a delivery guy delivering bread within Yale University so I worked for a bakery that made German bread and they had a contract with Yale, so I would go and deliver throughout Yale University, and the morning that George H.W. Bush died, this George senior, um, I was in his former home, because it was one of the departments like uh, of economics for within Yale. So I'm walking through this building, I look down at the newspaper, and it's like, George W. Bush dies today, uh, you know, so-and-so age, He was a former resident of New Haven. He lived at 88 Hill House Ave, the exact building I was sitting in the morning that this news comes out. So I've had a few interesting like synchronicities, you know, Amos, of course, and a couple uh, strange sightings within New Haven. You know, people talk about uh, homeless people disappearing like through these vents, these like grates that drop down into the street because Yale has like a tunnel system underneath it that was built along with the newer parts of the university Uh, in the 1800s when snow removal wasn't like totally cleaned up the way we do now. They would just shovel it all out instead of, uh, you know, trafficking all these people through snow, they would just go through these tunnels underground to go from building to building during the winter, you know. Isn't
0: there like a bunch of Rosicrucian activity up there too, in New
2: Haven? Well, the Knights of Columbus, the Knights of Columbus building is there and that's connected loosely, but that would be more Mike's expertise than I. He probably hasn't looked into it in New Haven, but no, as far as I know, the the connection with the rosicrucians could be there i mean skull and bones is as the historical record tells us a german organization anthony sutton did a lot of research on this and he found out that it was a german organization that was sort of taking up a second chapter in yale university and the rosicrucians had a big impact on german history so it wasn't English. We were talking about the Jolly Roger flag Hmm. and pirates and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of these influences. So Yale started in 1717. That's when the first schoolhouse was built. Right. It started a few years earlier with the planning and all that, and they had a previous location. Um, But it was a, a colonialist venture. The German element came in in 1832. See. Skull and Bones wasn't built until... It wasn't founded until 1832, after there had already been, like, a multiple waves of secret societies within Yale. The first secret society was called Linolea, and they still have sort of, like, a vessel of it. It's called a debate society now. But Nathan Hale, America's first spy, was uh, a part of that mm. secret society, the mm. Linolia. But, no, it's... Uh, Puritan and there was like a Dutch sort of Calvinist influence on the New Haven colony but it was mostly people from England and uh, and the Dutch were there but they were more New York like they left a big impression on New York the Adrian Block the major like Dutch settler he founded New Haven he saw it first but the English were the first people like build stuff in New Haven so And they all migrated from massachusetts like everybody set foot in massachusetts first interacted with you know we have the pocahontas story that comes from like jamestown up there there's like the the story of um you know pilgrims getting the corn you know and the first thanksgiving that whole myth i mean the truth is The the natives saw how helpless the colonialists were in the first winter and they like had to help them out, you know, like they just were like, to your point earlier, like they were expecting that same brotherhood in return and they didn't get it because those Puritans were so like, you know, whatever it was. I mean, we can't step back into their consciousness totally and say for sure. But it seems like they had just this superstitious bias, like these people don't worship God, so they don't have the same rights as us, you know, That or, or our God, at least, you know, like the Christian God that they believed in. So that uh, that influence is very pronounced in Skull and Bones and their influence on politics. It's a very like Anglo-Protestant first mentality, like the eugenicist type type of uh movement that really funded what happened in germany uh was based out of skull and bones and a lot of like the elite families in new england they were all for that kind of stuff because you know they were they've always been they've always had this mentality of uh we're god's chosen people and and you know we have to be right with god for the apocalypse because it's on its way and they even built new haven so that the center green area would fit 144,000 people like it says in the book of revelations yeah, wow, so yeah in their white sleeves, so. yeah so and that's yeah and that's the mentality that was carved into america of like the s- savages are not you know allowed to be in our domains we're the you know royal righteous christians and we're just going to you know, take what we can you know and and leave um, <laughs> blood and destruction in our wake you know like the new haven green itself is like a burying ground you know massacre site and now there's three churches and a park built on it you know and they have big music festivals <coughs> Tara even had a, a trance at, at one of the music festivals on the um, the green yeah before we started dating she saw this like spirit rock yeah, it was like a stone an like a apparition. And when she told me this I had like really no concept. Like I was kind of like I didn't really get what she was saying, but I it's a while finding
3: the stones. Yeah. <laughs> I've never yeah. Down
2: stones. yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of Yeah. A lot that's gone into this coming here multiple different books that we've found tomorrow we're going to where mike's keeping all of his books he says he's going to let us so he's trying to give away all his stuff so i don't know if he's offered that to you but he i'd recommend
0: but that's a dangerous offer <laughs> books
2: right? oh yeah no.
0: good at collecting them i'm not sure how about how good i am at reading them.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. yeah i'm i'm in the same boat so I don't know. I'm I'm excited and also a little bit like, all right, keep it, keep yourself uh, behaved. <laughs> I don't want to take I'm too many books. To oh yeah. Well, when I visited where he was staying in Millersville, he had, uh, he had some really amazing stuff. Like right up, your alley from everything I've felt, you know, through our conversation, up our alley, up your alley. I'm sure. sure. Yeah, Mike's got a, a quite the collection, <laughs> but. I don't know, this has been uh, it's been a really interesting way to have a conversation, you know, recording it. And I want to thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Zach, for joining me here, joining Tara and I on our journey and being a part of it in this intimate way. It really means a lot to us and sharing a part of, you know, who you are with us and the people that will listen, you know. And is there any way that they could get in touch with you if you'd like them to uh, Instagram or something like that you want to tell people before we wrap this up
0: uh, I think you could put it in your show notes
2: yeah if you want I'll put it in the show yeah, notes I,
0: mean, I, I can be found
2: um, cool
0: these days I'm trying to be less and less mm. virtually oriented so right I, I can't even keep up with my email right now so <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah they're definitely welcome to look me up and, and find me but cool I don't feel like I'm in a place to just, like, keep the doors wide open. (laughs) Right.
2: Right. Respectfully. Cool. We'll wrap it up there.